Welcome back to the show, everybody. Today, sat with me here is a friend that I've met um, through another guest that we were uh, trying to uh, get into the show, um, and he has highly recommended this this man. Uh, and so he sat in front of me right now for this episode of The Scale of It All. Tell hello to the people. Welcome to the show, Will. Great. Thank you so much. Hello, people. Uh, <laughs> my name is Will Mohop, and okay. I started future copywriting. That's my thing. Whoa. Whoa. Right. Now, Will, um, uh, we, were, we got to talking earlier before the show, and... Um, yeah, why don't you uh, just uh, tell us a little bit about about copywriting because it's definitely one of those things that people should know more about, but for some reason people just don't seem to to care about it. Yeah, I 100 I you know what people the people that should care or know or both about copywriting are definitely the people starting their own businesses or that run their own businesses or that work in marketing departments. Um, or that care to know when they are being sold to. And with the, with the way that the internet has gone, we are just constantly sold to, we are sold mm. to, we are sold yeah. and traded. And so, uh, I, I'll tell you that learning, learning about copywriting, learning more about marketing has totally opened my eyes to how around every single every single corner on the internet and in person more so on the internet now mm -hmm. is just the the process of transaction is just happening so um to start about if, if the the question is to to tell a little bit more about what copywriting is and i would say the first thing to recognize because in my experience this has been the confusion around copywriting, the initial confusion around copywriting all the time. I mean, there's always confusion about copywriting, and this is always the first one. People mix it up, mix it up with copyright. And I don't know if copyright is really necessarily a thing outside of the US, but copyright, R-I-G-H-T, is a legal aspect of kind of putting your stamp on something that you said or made. And I do copywriting. W-R-I-T-I-N-G. Mm. And copywriting, like what I do, is the process of writing anything with the intention to sell. Now, it the real definition can be broader than that because it doesn't have to be to sell. Content writing, like blog writing, can be copywriting as well. I just don't care about that stuff because it doesn't sell. Okay. And when it, when it comes to when it comes to my business and what I'm doing and what I, what I have to deliver for my clients and what I want to deliver for my clients is I want to increase their revenue. And so I don't want to care so much about their blog posts or their social media posts unless I can, can tie it directly to sales. Right. And so and, I yeah. focus, yeah, I focus on revenue generating copywriting. Mm. Why do you think people should, should focus more on, on copywriting as opposed to you know the content that people put out there well it depends on on what they are doing themselves but in general i would say to to really know the principles behind copywriting if you are let's say you're a content creator or you run a business to know more about the concepts of copywriting and the ideas behind them it's going to let you reach more people reach the right people 
Um, I'm sure anyone who's run a business for long enough has, has reached the wrong people, the people who drain resources, who come through and don't buy anything, or maybe they buy something, but they buy like a low priced item and they don't buy anything else. And then they're reaching out to customer service and they're asking for refunds. If that's happening, you are reaching the wrong people. You are not reaching the people that can actually be helped by your product. Mm. And you're not reaching the people whose problems you actually want to solve. And more importantly, you're not reaching the people that you actually want to spend your time with. And this has been a huge uh, kind of revelation as I've developed in my business and worked with more and more people is that when you run a business, running a business is all about selling things at like bottom line. And it's so, it's funny. I'm going to go off on a little tangent real quick that yeah, go ahead. business schools don't really teach sales. In fact, sales is kind of a dirty thing in business school and sales is just kind of a dirty thing in general. No one likes the car salesman. No one likes, no one likes walking into a retail store and having the, the, the associate come up to you and try to sell you something sales makes people uncomfortable and people are uncomfortable selling their own products as a result. Mm. But at the same time, sales are the most important aspect of a business. Tell me about it. Yeah. Bring in, yeah. yeah right. <laughs> sales money. bring in revenue <laughs> and, and revenue money is needed to keep a business going. True. And so if you don't know how to sell or selling makes you uncomfortable and you run a business, you're going to burn out really quickly mm. you know? or starve or starve. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And yeah. so, um, so it's, it's wildly important to know how to sell and it's wildly important to sell to the right people. Mm. And so to know basic concepts, I mean, basic concepts that I could teach you on a short podcast will have you reaching the right people faster, bringing them in better and building a better relationship with them so that they're happy to buy from you and you're happy to sell from them. And the last point I was, I was, I was working to on that was that the more people I work with, the more you realize, like when you start a business, people will, you will, if you accept the sales aspect of it, you will sell to anyone because you need the money. I will just, I don't care who I'm selling to. I will just sell and sell. And you're going to get people that you don't like. Mm. You're going to get people you don't like. You're going to get and these people that you don't like are going to bother you. They're going to bother you because you don't like them. Mm. Right. And, uh, if you have just some of the most basic fundamental aspects of copywriting down, you're going to make sure that you're not bringing those people in, that you're bringing in the people that you want to spend your time with, because your business is going to be based around spending time with these people, especially mm. if you are, in the content creation on the internet realm, because really all of that is based around guru marketing, which is, you know, uh, you are the singular kind of center person in the business. Everyone knows your face. Like if we think, uh, you mentioned Joe Rogan earlier, right? Joe Rogan's podcast, Joe Rogan is the guru. Everyone knows Joe Rogan's face. They don't put Jamie on the screen. Yes. Mm -hmm. We know about Jamie or whatever, yeah. but Joe Rogan's the guy. And anyone who will buy anything from Joe Rogan wants to buy time with Joe Rogan. They want to be around Joe Rogan. Yeah. And it's the same thing, no matter if you're Joe Rogan, who's, you know, the biggest podcaster in the world, or if you are a very, very, very small podcaster or, or a very small anything, whoever is interested in your product wants is really interested in you. 
Hmm. And they want to spend time with you. Yeah, that's such a good point because, um, you know, um, I, I came across this book a few years ago when I was trying to to improve how to get my content out there. It's uh, it's a book called Sell Like Crazy hmm. by um, he's a he's he's Aussie. I think his name is Sabri Sabri Subi or something. And I mean, when I he's one of those guys. He's like the he's he was like an Andrew Tate, but not in in a sense of he's his he is you know of what andrew tate is but like you couldn't take a shit in the morning without seeing his face on your feed he was everywhere <laughs> for a minute yeah i mean for a moment yeah. there he was everywhere and like he he was it got me interested um he definitely sold me so um he had a good funnel which is one thing that i really want to get in uh get get in with you um later on is how funnels work and how people um out there are actually um oblivious to what a funnel is and how you know and yeah. he had some good concepts in the book and one concept to add to your point there about finding the right person uh the right customer who wants to spend time with you is um you have to match the temperature of the people that you're trying to sell to so if, mm -hmm. if you look at how a funnel looks like the top uh part of the funnel that's like cold it's like a cold audience which is like just people random people who are on their feeds every day and then you go one tier below and that's like warm so those are people who actually you, you get some eyeballs in whatever funnel you have and you go one lower to where the spout is and that's like it gets warmer there so those are people who are actually looking at your your stuff now and then the last part is obviously a conversion but the important part is like you have to match you have to learn how to match um uh the temperature of 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 your your customer or the, the like he had a he had a a line in one of his chapters like you wouldn't go up to a stranger out of the blue and ask them to have sex with you would you because mm -hmm. right. you basically just met like it doesn't work that way it doesn't right. work that way so and he takes you through like the the workings of a funnel and like like how the copywriting in that funnel works so the first is basically just a it's nothing really it's just an introduction and maybe just like you know just like a click through to the website the second there is like okay like what what the website's all about and then if you go deeper into the funnel then you get to see and i i've been to your um your website and i definitely saw some of those principles there and it's the same thing like you do you you have to match the level of interest and not not yeah. just go out and cold sell because we all we all had that phone call you know when, when like an outsourced um telemarketer <laughs> just calls you out of the blue and just sells you stuff if you're not 95 and senile you just end the call right then and there <laughs> you know so yeah so yeah interesting stuff and it's really useful to know this so um um just just a little you know just before we get into the the bits and bobs of it like how long have you been doing this so the first time i ever did any kind of copywriting was uh june of 2021 okay and then within in january of 2022 i quit my full-time job to do it full -time. whoa that's pretty that's that's pretty quick um can we ask a little bit a, a little bit about your background yeah yeah uh, so how did you get into it in the beginning like why copywriting um people might assume like I, are you a writer of some sort 
Yeah, you know, I've always been interested in books and writing. I wish uh, I wish I could show you downstairs. We have this um, bookshelf kind of built into the wall, mm -hmm. and it's just just all filled with fiction, nonfiction, historical, science, anything that you can think of. Yeah. And so I've always been interested in books. And I actually, uh, on my poorly managed Instagram page, you could go and you could see that there is a picture of the first story I ever wrote when I was about 11 or 10, 11, 12 years old or something. Yeah. My dad gave me this old 1980s uh, digital typewriter word <laughs> processor thing that has this little screen. I actually still have it somewhere around here. And and I wrote these these stories on it. And so I was always interested in it, but I never really truly pursued it. I ended up studying psychology in college mm. and uh, with no real purpose behind it. I was just interested. I didn't know what to do. Right. And uh, so I studied psychology, which you could think is very helpful now. At that time, when I studied it, you know, my dad who pursued psychology and, and everyone, everyone around me was like, you're not going to do anything with it. I tried. I went into, so after university, I actually, I sat, I took the law school admissions test and I did decent on that. And I worked as a paralegal in a law firm, but I decided not to pursue law mm -hmm. and I was very lost really. And from there I started working with uh, at-risk youth and doing skills training and stuff like that. And then I worked at an at-risk youth home where uh, half the boys lived there and the other half would come just for school. I worked with the kids that went there for school. That was a wild ride. We could talk about that. But from there, I did a little bit of marketing work that wasn't real marketing work as far as like what I'm doing now. And that was at a private school. And then I got offered a job in this uh, translation corporation. And I was excited because it was kind of a newer startup vibe the company had been around for like 20 years but it was more of like a startup vibe and uh, a lot of young people interesting people and people from all over the world i was a recruiter for them and we i mean i i got to talk to people all over the world for several years as i worked there which was always awesome to me i was always very interested in different languages and different cultures and I really opened my eyes to what working in the corporate world is like, though. Did and you like it? No. Well, <laughs> at first, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> at first, but then I, I didn't. And I what what ends up what ended up happening with me. And this is this was a trend that I had been noticing. For a decade was that I would get massively interested in whatever job I got for about two to six months okay and then i'd get really bored mm. and i'm like i can do my job with my eyes closed and i'm bored and i'm bored and i think i was really seeking mm. some sort of challenge but you know businesses aren't they're not built around you the business is not built around finding a challenge to challenge me and rise me through the ranks mm. like you have to learn how to do it yourself mm. right which i was too immature to realize mm. and um and so what inevitably would happen is I would get bored at a job 
and I was, I would, I would be pretty entitled about it and I would just mm. start hating it and hating it and looking for something else. And that's what I was ended up doing. And so, um, I was very fortunate to have, uh, been connected with this awesome business owner who he was like, look, I'm looking for a copywriter. And I know that you've written before and that you enjoy writing. And I'd done some, some freelance writing for blogs and whatnot content stuff. Yeah. And he asked if I wanted to try it out. So I said, sure. So I flew out or he flew me out to him and, and we spent a weekend. I mean, it was quite literally like the first experience I'd had with a very intense business of like, you're not coming to have fun. You are coming to learn something and work, and then you're going to go home and you're going to do it. Right. And so I flew from Portland, Oregon on the West coast to Boston, Massachusetts on the East coast overnight flight, got there at like midnight, woke up the next day at like seven and worked and learned a lot, like learned. I had an intense crash course in funnels and value stacks and perceived value versus real value mm. and all of this, just, mm. just an intense crash course in everything that you could think of for marketing as far as like to get you from zero to one as fast as possible. And then a day and a half later, I flew back to Portland and that's how my business started. Wow. And so, okay. So then I was working at the corporation and doing this on the side and it became pretty intense. I mean, I, I had been learning. So the, the business that I was working with, some of the products that they sold were how to, a lot of it's kind of based around power and control. And like, if you've ever read uh, or, or seen Robert Green. Yeah, 48 who, Laws of Power. You got it. Yeah, A lot of the stuff good. is very similar to that, right? True, like how to, how, to, how to leverage and harness different aspects of human psychology yeah. to make gains in no matter what position you're in. And so a lot of this guy's stuff was like that. So uh, I started learning from that and just applying it on the on the offhand or whatever at the corporation and within like, I think I was not a very popular employee at first because uh, I was pretty outspoken. And like I said, I was there was aspects of my my personality that were were not as matured. Mm. And um, and so I, I think I was kind of like the problem child for a bit there. And then I started applying these very basic principles of psychology and within like two or three months, I was leading recruitment projects for them. I was working directly with their VP or with a VP within uh, the, de the department that I was in and helping lead major initiatives. And I was like, oh, shit, this is crazy. This shit actually works. You it know? does, yeah. And what I was essentially was applying was copywriting principles in person. Mm. Yeah. Which is kind of interesting. That's cool. Yeah. I remember um, there's one... Um... Yeah, whenever I'm the new guy, which is I, which I am now at the new place that I'm working at here in in New Zealand, uh, one one um, one principle in that in the in those forty eight laws that I always apply is that, that story about is it Talleyrand with um Louis the Fourth, mm -hmm. and like he was sort of like Louis's assistant, and then he wanted he liked so much to please Louis the Fourth. Yeah, and he would throw these huge banquets mm -hmm. for Louis with you know with the intention of 
of of for of Louis liking him because he's was this outshining the master one outshine do not outshine the master yeah. exactly and that's it, it ties in so well because there's a, there's a Korean proverb that actually ties in with it which is the, it's it doesn't tie in with it it's the same thing the mm-hmm. proverb goes it's the proud nail that gets the hammer so you know in, in households where there's like a, a wooden floorboard and yeah you know there's like that if if you're the if you're the nail that's sticking out you'll get the hammer so mm-hmm. at the end yeah so instead of, yeah he he got it that totally backfired on him that guy mm-hmm. um not sure if he lost his head for it but i think he got kicked out of the palace because um he outshone the master and I that's just that. yeah that's just one principle from i can't believe people actually there was there was some hate around that book as well because they were saying they were saying like oh yeah. this is like manipulation this is like mind right. controls like pfft. It's interesting. Yeah, I I remember that. And and I read that. I, I really like Robert Greene and I like the Daily Stoic. Uh, I think there's a lot of crossover between the two of them. They work together quite a bit. Yeah. Um, and so because I follow both of them on you know social media or whatever it is, like that comes up fairly often mm. that what they teach in those, not so much the Daily Stoic, but definitely uh, Robert Greene, what he teaches in there is amoral or even some people go as far to say it's immoral. And it's interesting because it's a, it's around us every day. And I can't help but agree with him that if you're so naive to think that this isn't happening to you and that you don't have control over it, well, then you're just that, right? Like you're naive. And, yeah. and it's almost like you just ask for it. And I think we understand that on a certain level if we're not thinking so much through the lens of power or whatever it is, we do understand that you get what you give. Mm. And we understand that if you're kind of like, if you're very passive, people are going to kind of walk all over you and they don't, some people might mean to, some people might intentionally, you know, take advantage of you, but those people are very rare psychologically speaking. And you're talking about someone with like antisocial personality Mm -hmm. disorder, which is like 1% of the population. Yeah. It's not a very common person, but you know, what is way more common is if you're passive and you don't assert yourself, you don't stand up for yourself. People are just going to take advantage without Mm. thinking. They're not thinking they're taking advantage. They're just asserting themselves Mm. and you're not asserting yourself. Mm. And so, um, yeah, Robert Greene talks a lot about, about the naivety of like, if you're not going to learn this, then other people are just going to exert it over you. True. Yeah. Unknowingly yeah. or, you know, um, subconsciously or consciously. That's so, that's so I kind of had that actually when I asked you, like, what's your background? It's either you're a writer or you had some background in psychology because copywriting, how many percent would you say it is is psychology in copywriting or is it the other way around? How many percent? No, yeah, it's it's. How many percent of it? It's a really good question. I've never thought about that. So I'm thinking about my process of when I write, when I write copy, especially sales copy or any kind of copy that's pushing towards some sort of action. Mm. And I would say every single sentence is working on some level psychologically. And Mm. they, they work together almost like Lego blocks to create an image or, or a structure. Mm. so all of it <laughs> yeah i'd say in some I, sense I agree, yeah i agree it's it's all of and it then, is psychology yeah. yeah and then there's uh we had a bit of a conversation before we started recording where i had mentioned like you know 
it did, something didn't scratch my artistic itch and that's something that can be very frustrating with business um i really appreciate art and uh especially when it comes to writing i get very geeky about the artistic aspect of writing and flow and it needs to sound good and there's ways to make things sound good and there's you could say the same thing in different ways and it sounds like crap Mm. and otherwise it sounds beautiful and it could be the most like asinine thing and so uh every sentence has psychology and then for me there's also still that artistic aspect of it, which is the writing aspect. Mm. Now, that does not mean for everyone who copyrights, it's got to be like that because it doesn't. The truth is you don't have to be a good writer to be a good copywriter. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's like, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I've seen some absolutely god-awful looking sales pages with the clunkiest words and if it didn't make me want to buy it at the end of it like i'll tell you man and so it it just goes to show like you you can be absolutely terrible at writing or think that you're terrible at writing because the truth is you're probably not as bad as you think but you could be just absolutely terrible at writing you could misspell things have terrible sentence structure as long as you're hitting the emotional psychological aspects of it you can be a good copywriter yeah, because I mean, buying a thing is um now I'm thinking about like how much of how how much of of buying things is psychology now as opposed to necessity. I'm pretty sure. That's uh, mm. pretty easy to <clears throat> that's pretty easy I guess, yeah. If I can cut you off real yeah, quick. Yeah, go ahead. Interesting point that you just said. How much of it is psychology versus necessity? Even the necessity. So it's all emotion. All of buying is an emotional decision. Even necessities. Huh. Which is interesting. So when we think about the structure of the human brain um, through the evolutionary lens, we have the brain stem, which is the oldest part of the brain, right? And that regulates the automatic functions of the body. We have no control over it no conscious control over control yeah. in the, the lizard age, brain right? yeah, the, mon- the monkey brain yeah exactly the midbrain is the next oldest mm-hmm. and this um this regulates emotions and it's it's where emotion kind of uh stems from so like the amygdala is in there and memory the hippocampus is in there and all of this stuff that is where the decision making is happening instantly subconsciously and then there's the prefrontal cortex newest part of the brain Humans have the most developed one. It's awesome. It makes us be able to rationalize and think about things. Now, what we don't realize is that anytime we buy something, we make the decision to buy before we even think about it, Mm. before we rationalize it, because that's all thinking about it. When we think thinking, we are thinking of the words that we have or the images that we see in our mind. That's all just rationalization to resolve the cognitive dissonance that that arises when we want to buy something uh-huh. that desire is an emotion. Mm. Our, our midbrain says, I want that right. Emotionally, that is mine. I want it. I want to possess it. Our prefrontal cortex has to rationalize why we should get it. 
And that's all that is. And so mm. when it comes to copywriting, we, a good copywriter, will trigger the emotional aspect all throughout, usually by talking about pain. And we could talk, we can kind of dive into pain. Yeah, go for it. Um, but we we trigger the pain that people feel about a problem because typically a product should solve a problem. So we trigger that pain throughout what we write throughout the sales page or, or whatever it is that we're writing to sell this thing. The logical aspects all play a role simply to echo back what the reader is likely to be rationalizing. Mm. Mm. And that builds trust because it's mirror. It's an, it's a form of mirroring, right? We trust people that look like us. We trust people that sound like us, that act like us, yeah. that think like us. Mm. So as the copywriter, you trigger the emotion which triggers the desire to buy. Mm -hmm. And then you echo back the rationalizations of why they're already thinking they should get it and why it's okay to get it. And, and that, then you ask yeah. them to buy. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. That does sound like, yeah. That's manipulation, Will. <laughs> you you should be ashamed okay, of so... yourself. You should be ashamed <laughs> of yourself, man. I rationalize this in a certain way. <laughs> it is no, a but... form of no but yeah no it's not to me it's um i mean I, I think people have an have a problem with the wording but actually it's just um yeah you could call it just rationalization because you've already made the decision you know you're just wanting no you just want to confirm that your decision is right and that's i think where you know where where, where guys like you that's the gap that you fill it's just that that little push that little that last little push that's for certain things, yes. Yeah. So it gets very complicated because you get into the aspects of how aware people are of certain things. Um, depending on your niche and what you're selling, someone might be what we call problem aware, mm. meaning your product solves a problem. And if your avatar, your customer is problem aware, they know exactly what's causing their problem. Well, that's really easy to speak to someone who's problem aware, right? Because you can just call out the problem in the headline and it's going to interest them. Okay. Now they can be problem aware and solution unaware. And in that case, then you have to educate them uh, around the idea of how you can solve because the solution has been out of their purview for a yeah, while. Yeah. So if someone's problem aware and solution aware, this is going to be the easiest to sell to. If they're, if oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. If there's, if they're problem aware, unaware. If they're problem aware okay. and solution aware, okay, they're looking for you. Yeah, they're hot. Yeah. You're the you're the person. Yeah, they're hot. Exactly. They're the person that you're the person that can give them the solution that they know they need. Yeah. Now, if they're problem unaware and solution unaware, you have some work to do. Yeah, yeah. You usually, you're not going to do it in just a sales page. Yeah, you have to create the need for them, which is like I don't know. Were flashlights bring... the way they were? But <laughs> 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 well, that would be a good example of people. Well, yeah, fleshlight, fleshlight. That's that is an interesting one. If I think like who needs a fleshlight is a lonely guy. Yeah. Who's pro he's problem aware though. He okay. knows his problem is that he he can't get any. Okay. But he's solution unaware. Yeah. Which is why you then you lean into the pain of masturbating with your hand. Okay. It sucks. It doesn't feel like the real thing. It chafes if you don't if you're not careful <laughs> okay. if you do too much. But get this, we have this thing 
Yeah. The flashlight. Yeah. Right? Which is the opposite and of all those things you just mentioned. I now right. I'm think now now you got me thinking now. I think there's one one very obvious example of a product, you know, that's selling consistently. Um this is I think this is obviously way back when when it was new where they were product un where they were problem unaware and solution unaware as well. And I don't know if you'd agree with me. Would that be the iPhone or any Apple product? Would that be a good example? Because nobody really needed it, but like for some reason, yes. Jesus, they made the need for it. Like, no, I have I have to have it now. I would agree with you. So, dude, that's so funny. It's so funny that you mentioned that. So I f I follow this Instagram channel, History something, History Memes, which is funny because it's not really a lot of memes, mm. which I'm okay with. It's it's more like historical videos. And one that showed up in the feed today was Regis Philbin on the, what is it, Regis and Kelly show or whatever yeah. in the States. When the iPhone, the very first iPhone came out in 2007, and Regis is like, who needs it? You put you put it together. No, that's that's stupid. That's yeah. not that's dumb. And he's yeah. being totally serious. Like, I know the guy's got a, a freaking iPhone now. Right. Absolutely. Or did Regis die? I have to fact. I have <laughs> yeah. to Jamie myself. Yeah, go Jamie one. yourself and see. <laughs> OK, he does not have an iPhone now. OK, well, he hasn't had one since 2020. But he had one, though. Probably. Probably, I'd say, I'd say, I'd say yes, but that's just so, so amazing. Yeah. Ultimately, I would agree with you that when, and then, cause I also a couple days ago, there was the, uh, announcement. Yeah. I saw a video of Steve jobs at whatever, um, summit announcing the first iPhone. Yeah. And it was interesting because the way they talked about it, the way they talked about the iPhone was very dumbed down which is typically what you do when someone's problem unaware. Yeah. You're very, very basic on them. And it was like, it's your iPhone. It's your phone. It's your home computer. Yeah. All in one. Uh -huh. You didn't realize you needed that until today, <laughs> until today. And now you, and so it was, so the problem was like, the iPhone is so, man, I love the iPhone. Mm. I, I had the original iPhone. I just tried to fix my glasses. I'm not wearing my glasses. <laughs> <laughs> I had the original. I got the original iPhone in 2007 and I had the iPhone for several years. And then I tried Android and twice. And every time I've tried Android, I'm just like, eh. and then I go back to iPhone. So I just went back to iPhone 14 and it's so freaking revolutionary in mm every sense of the word in every aspect just that original iphone man they they wouldn't have to do anything else hmm. like the fact that they combine so many different devices i remember carrying a cell phone carrying an mp3 player yeah carrying like if i wanted better pictures than what my flip phone took then you had to have a camera yeah yeah and it's such a it's so funny because it's such a stupid problem to solve <laughs> how to have but it was a problem how to have them yeah how to have all of them in one thing and still so so cool when you think about it that way too and so watching but the wild thing was that they introduced things that that people didn't even realize they wanted that's and the thing that's freaking marketing magic dude. i know that's i'm I'm a huge fan of products that do that one 
one product that I, you know, that's, um, that I definitely have, uh, you know, that I'm definitely going to get, dude. I've already written it out here, actually. <laughs> I've written it out here in a little piece of paper, toilet paper. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> one product that is... Is it a the, notebook? That's, that's the product you're going to get? Well, I should probably... Yeah, you just... I probably do need a notebook. Yeah, if I if I did ever actually write write anything down more than once. Um, one product that's not doing zero. I haven't seen an ad. You, I'm probably unaware. Is Tesla. Mm. They don't do ads. But people know about it. I haven't I've seen a commercial. Seen a Tesla commercial, yeah. But yeah, but for the but they're you know it's it's obviously Elon Musk is obviously the 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 primary mover, and he's everywhere and people all definitely know all about him. But the product itself, the car itself, mm. does not have a single goddamn commercial out there. That's as far as I can think. That's very true. I've never seen a Tesla commercial and. I have had moments of really wanting a Tesla. Yeah, mm, mm, mm. I know it's a. I know it's a. It's a very um, revolutionary car as well, and it's a, it's mm -hmm. a definitely a better version of a car. But why do I want it exactly? I don't know. But I just gotta have it. I I, I I'm definitely I definitely have an eye. My eyes on a Tesla at some so point. This is in the future. this is actually a really this is a really good segue into the idea of another aspect of why it's important to understand fundamentals of marketing and copywriting. Mm. And that is that it changes the way you think about buying and it changes the way you think about what you need and what you want. And so with the Tesla, let's use that example. Yeah. I've wanted a Tesla and I've thought about why do I want a Tesla? And it's interesting, just like you said, like it's not that I've seen a commercial or anything like that. It's totally word of mouth. It's riding in them. They have a nice ride and everything. Mm. Now, if I was totally untrained in my knowledge of copywriting and marketing and I had the means, I would probably have gotten a Tesla mm. when I was really feeling it, you know, when I was really wanting it. Mm -hmm. But the more I thought about it, the more I also realized it's totally impractical to my needs. Mm. You know, the Tesla's good if you live in the city and you commute in the city. Yeah. I, I live in the city, but I don't want to live in the city. Okay. I want to live more rural. Yeah. I want to spend time in the mountains. I'm not taking the Tesla to the mountains. Right. And so there's that aspect of realizing like you're being sold with Tesla, it's, you're being sold through the experience of just using it. I mean, how badass is it to sit in a car that does a fucking dance and has a goddamn <laughs> iPad as the fucking heads up display? Yeah. Like, it's you're in the future in a Tesla. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, that should be their slogan. When you're in a Tesla, you're in the future. That could you be know? good. Yeah. Sell that. Yeah. Put put it in an but email and send it to them and invoice them. If you if you rely purely on your instinctual feelings, you will buy a Tesla. Yeah, but people don't. If you have though. that experience, right? Well, most people do, man. Yeah. Like one of the one of the big aspects. Yeah, I mean that that was the conversation earlier about our decisions are made in the midbrain uh. emotionally, and then we rationalize. We essentially backwards engineer our logic around our emotion, which is antithetical to the purpose of logic, mm. right? 
And I think that's a very common thing today. Um, that was the whole idea of the enlightenment was actually to get around that. I think, uh, in the 1500s, we started really, or the 1400s, we started really realizing our magical thinking, our uh, religious thinking, our emotional thinking, not that any of them are bad in themselves, but people realized that we were almost looking at the world through one eye closed mm -hmm. and that the, and it was important to us to start seeing the world through both eyes open. Uh, and so we, you know, uh, well, in, in ancient Greek and, and anywhere where mathematics really, really evolved, uh, ancient Greece and the Mayans and pretty much everywhere. I think the, we use the Arabic numeral system. Or don't forget, yeah, don't forget the now. Muslims, man. The, that, right they were yeah. wild with astronomy and mathematics Come on. and zero they found out <laughs> zero. That there's zero that there's nothing <laughs> exactly <laughs> don't don't count them out man it's like were they just smoking hookah and like oh, there's like fucking nothing, they're dude. they they you're 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 um you're definitely um we we're gonna be here forever because um you talked about like i'm pretty sure it's not the 1500s when people started at looking at things with their eyes both eyes open you know i mean no, we go through cycles of it, man. I mean, I, I kind of thought about that after I'd said 1500s because I was thinking enlightenment, which is yeah. like where we really started applying that to legal matters, right? And to the organization of society. Okay. Before then, if we talk about uh, the ancient world, we're talking about like philosophers and alchemists. And there was still this weird mixture of of magical thinking with logical thinking and the people that like really rejected all the magical thinking and were just like purely logic were like yeah. fucking crazy homeless dudes. Yeah, like, and they were killed, yeah, and burnt and what whatnot. Right. Yeah. Like right. But um but we have that desire. Like the point is is that does that desire is there. And it does come in cycles where there will be a rise of like logic is good. Logic is helping us develop inventions and innovations and getting us out of uh you know terrible ways of doing things mm. and then we'll i don't know forget it or something or something we get distracted by the good times and then we kind of go into this uh slump where we start getting into like wild things like today mm. today i think of like my you know the lived experience is like so important and and it's all just based around how people feel mm. not really based around like maybe the re the the very complex realities of a specific moment mm. of time mm. you know where there's so many different things interacting but because i felt a certain way it's true and that's that's all buying i felt like i wanted that thing so mm. i bought it yeah, no, I, I take it back now. Actually, you're you're kind of right. Yeah, people actually do just go, go with their gut feel, and you know, they're um, it's all very instinctual, which I think is a big part as well. Why it's totally normal too. That's the thing. Yeah, and this was actually this. So learning about learning about marketing and copywriting is difficult in that it introduces a lot of cognitive dissonance. 
for which those, is the yeah, idea. Sorry, go ahead. For, for, for I'm sorry. Um, for those people out there who are listening up to this point, let's. Why don't we? Um, why don't we? Um, parse that out. What is cognitive dissonance for those who are listening? So, cognitive dissonance is when you hold two opposing ideas at the same time, and it creates psychological pain. Mm. It's not physical pain. It doesn't hurt, but it leaves you psychologically hurt, such yeah. as depression, anxiety. Mm. Uh, uncertainty. We live in a time of cognitive dissonance. We know that we shouldn't be on our phone scrolling. We call it doom scrolling. Mm. And yet, what do we do when we're taking a crap? We doom scroll, even though we know we shouldn't. We know we should wake up early and make our bed because that'll set us up. You know, what do they say? Like you make your bed and it's like uh, you accomplish the first goal of the day and yeah. that kind of sets your mind. And what do we do every day? wake up don't want to get up go downstairs like or go to the other room we don't make our bed you know it's like a fucking chore to do it mm. we live in the era of cognitive dissonance and i don't know if like it's always been like that or if it's a thing of the schizophrenia that's been introduced by the internet mm. but what what i do know is that all of us deal with a lot of cognitive dissonance every single day and no, I kind of forgot why I introduced cognitive dissonance. No, we were talking about like That's so right. I, I think what your marketing does. Yeah, yeah. What, what, so how does that? How does your field like fill that gap because of this thing so, called cognitive dissonance? Well, it does and it doesn't. Like when you, my point was going to be that when you start learning about marketing and copywriting, it introduces a lot of cognitive dissonance into your life because so many people can go through their life ignoring the dissonance ignoring their problems maybe on some level knowing what causes them problems but deciding to distract themselves with gaming or drugs or drinking sex anything like we live in an era of distraction too right um and so when you learn marketing and copywriting it introduces cognitive dissonance because you start realizing that you buy impulsively that you buy based on emotion no matter how logical you think you are i know for me i like to fancy myself some sort of thinker i read a lot and i like to write about things that i read and it makes me think that i'm a thinker but then <laughs> I'm a total consumer at the yeah. same time, Yeah, you know, I'm no better than the people like that I sell to. And, and I mean, that's an important point, but at the same time, it doesn't feel very good to think at first to think, man, I learned all the things that are used against me by the things that I buy. And I feel like it made me feel kind of dumb because I think that it's kind of a personal thing. It depends on who you are. For me, I felt like I should have known or I should have seen it. I should have been smarter than I was. And all of those kinds of thoughts is introducing cognitive dissonance, mm. all different kinds of cognitive dissonance. I should have been smarter, one thing, but I wasn't. Other thing on the opposite end of that spectrum and they pull in different directions, which causes tension, which causes anxiety, causes 
any sort of like mental pain, right? And you have to resolve that cognitive dissonance. Now, also the cool thing about copywriting and marketing is that you can solve cognitive dissonance for people mm. because everyone is experiencing it, right? So when you're selling a product that can solve someone's problem, you can predict that the act of buying will introduce some sort of dissonance because let's say people say, I want this, but it costs money and I know I shouldn't spend money. Cognitive dissonance. And you can help solve that problem. You could use your skills to teach people about that. That's kind of what I'm moving into doing, right? Teaching people the different ways that marketing and copywriting is used so that they can see it. They can use it or they can see it to to uh, help better their lives. Um, but the cognitive dissonance is a real thing. And that that is one thing that I definitely wasn't expecting when I started learning all of this stuff. Uh, and I'll tell you, I'm more of a conscious consumer now than I ever was before. Mm. And it's once I got through the cognitive dissonance of feeling like I should have been better, I should have known better, I should have done this or I should have done that. When I got through it, when I worked through it, I appreciate the things that I buy more because I know I'm more aware of what's being triggered for me to buy that thing. Mm. Yeah. It, um, I remember how I all got into like podcasting, which is such a, it's such a tangent to what I was originally trying to do. So when COVID mm. hit, I was, I was, I was pretty sure that I was going to lose my job because like, 90% of my team lost theirs and they just received an email that they were just going to have six months left in their contracts and nothing was going to happen after that. So when that happened, I was like, I didn't receive the email, but I was like, I'm not going to wait for that email. So I'm going to have to make some moves. So I got into drop shipping, which was a very fucking big thing when, when, mm -hmm. when COVID hit, I got into that too, man. Jesus. And it was lost all my money. All right. Sold probably i'd say a dozen products okay but the amount of information and knowledge that i've learned from the experience it just i was never the same after because uh i was just exposed to like the matrix it's a it's the matrix man mm -hmm. i hate to sound like you know i hate to sound like i hate to sound weird but it's true especially when i got into facebook ads and just getting into the, the uh, just just um being introduced and managing my own facebook business account manager profile and the number of data points that yeah, i was that's I, pretty wild i realized like fuck we volunteered all this information to facebook yeah. on the you know in the beginning of creating a profile like I'm sure you, you. I'm sure you're not. You're. You're. Um. You're definitely not a. Not. Not a beginner in this. But um, you could target using Facebook ads. You could target a 40 year old man, lives with his mom, single in his basement, likes the color blue, plays PlayStation every other day, likes drinking smoothies, occasionally exercises. Like you could just target this specific customer. Can I add something into this real yeah. quick? Yeah, go. Can you hold on to your your point? Yeah. Is just it's a also I, I want to point out a manifestation 
of our collective cognitive dissonance here. You mm. can target all of that, but you can't target a Republican or you can't target a Democrat. Like what? on Facebook ads. Yeah. Oh. You're not allowed to. Okay. You can target the most fucking minute detail yeah. of someone's life. Oh, but if they're a Republican, you can't do that because like, I don't know, election tampering or something. Okay. Right? Okay. That is an example of cognitive dissonance at play. It's okay to target all of these really yeah, specific yeah. things. Mm, oh, mm. but it's not okay to target this other thing. Like, what's really the difference there, right? Yeah. You're just trying to sell. I was selling sushi makers. That's all I was trying to. I didn't care about, you know, <laughs> what kind of political right. no, where you were. Right. Yeah. But that it was an interesting because I was literally just setting up a Facebook ad. Mm. And we were like, oh, search Republican. Can you do that? No. Oh, you can't do that now. Oh, I think you used to. And I wonder if it was the whole Cambridge Analytica thing. Yeah, yeah. I was about to say that it was probably because of that. So they took that um, they took that uh, that metric down on Facebook. But you could go you could definitely get around it. You might be you a could figure bit, it out a little bit you racial and, you know, you could touch on some sensitive. Well, you can't, what you is can't, a Republican? I don't think you can do. I don't think you could do race. I don't think you can do um, political affiliation yeah yeah ideology but you could be like you could be like in general what are republicans attracted to and the what dallas are dallas cowboys attracted to? yeah <laughs> there you go dallas cowboys or seattle seahawks <laughs> <laughs> you could go around it fuck it, yeah. to, to me it was just like and i pro and i swore to myself when i got into it and then you know i was introduced to alibaba you know, on yeah. AliExpress, I'm like, I'm never going to buy a single fucking thing in my life anymore. I'm never going to buy a single fucking thing because I, now I know how much these things are actually just worth. And everything around it is just branding and marketing. Yeah. I've got like $2,500 worth of macrame wall hangings in my garage right now. <laughs> that was for Amazon. For uh, FBA. FBA. by Amazon. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I was sold on that by a guy called Derek Struggle. Okay, that's, that's his, a good name. That was actually, his YouTube name. Yeah, it's a good name, right? That's a good name. Yeah, all about the hustle, and the, the struggle, side, the side hustle, the, the grind, struggle, yeah. right? <laughs> grind. Yeah, exactly. And it was so fun, dude. It's so when I think back on it now, right? Because I knew nothing about marketing then. Yeah. And when I think back on it, like he made it sound so easy. It's so easy. Here's all the numbers. Here's the testimonials, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. He used to do videos like he had a really nice house. And it wasn't like an overstated mansion, which I know he could probably pull off because yeah. he drove like a Lambo, mm. right? But it was a really nice house in like LA or something. And the videos were all good production and it, the marketing was so good. Mm. The end result, not as good as the marketing, which is really interesting brings to it another really interesting point about marketing and about psychology mm. of of consumerism and that's that when something doesn't work by and large the person will never ask for a refund even if there's a money back guarantee mm. because they blame themselves for the failure damn that is so yeah. true. And, you know, ever since I learned that I yeah. get every fucking money back guarantee. Anytime I am like the least unhappy with the purchase, I'm like, I will fight the cognitive dissonance and I will get my fucking money back because no, I, yeah, yeah, no one does it. And no it one does really it. was just that, that reason when that was pointed mm -hmm. out to me, it was mind blowing.
Yeah, I think it's it's something. It's it also is like the gambler's fallacy where you're so invested and you think like like that could have been on me, so I'm gonna try to win it back. And you know, asking for a refund could probably be a sign of like throwing in the towel that you've given. You've exactly. given up, That's exactly you know? what it is. And I'm so Damn, glad that yeah. you mentioned the gambler's fallacy, dude, because so much of this is <clears throat> so much of marketing of like true directed marketing. Mm is uh all based around cognitive bias cognitive distortion and cognitive heuristics all the well those are those are they're those are two new terms today um what's cognitive um distortion sounds pretty self-explanatory but um yeah so go for yeah it. so what happens is cognitive bias is a buzzword now bias is such a buzzword for the last couple of years but it's it's talked about like it's a bad thing and the interesting thing is that bias is amoral the same way that 48 laws of power is amoral. There's no morals around bias or power. It's just something that exists, right? Okay. So cognitive bias, let's start with, uh, that's actually, we're going to, we're going to go backwards. We're going to start with cognitive heuristics. Do that. If anyone is interested in cognitive heuristics, look up thinking fast and slow by Daniel Kahneman. Mm, mm. That's that's the book to get introduced to this concept. So <laughs> heuristics are basically just mental shortcuts that we take because there's so much uh, data in the world. There's so many data points that we cannot process all of them simultaneously. And we have to we have to stratify and like organize automatically what's important, what's not important. We're very discriminatory beings in that sense. And so a heuristic helps us with that heuristics are shortcuts like um a big one from that book thinking fast and slow he talks about the availability heuristic and that is the easier something is to recall the more likely it is to be true in your mind and so the way that they tested this was actually really fascinating they asked someone are there more are there more words that start with the letter K in the English language or words where K is the third letter in the language or in the word? I don't know. And because it's really difficult to think of K being the third letter. Yeah. The vast majority of people said that there were more words where K is the first letter. But. But the opposite was true. Okay. Okay. I get you. So for them proves the idea of the availability heuristic, which actually at that, at that point, the heuristic is the shortcut okay at concluding coming to the conclusion as a result of that heuristic that more words start with k than have k as a third letter that's the bias mm. the bias is conclusion is a faulty conclusion based off of mental shortcuts okay okay and then a cognitive distortion is the lens through which you see things Right. So if you are depressed, you will have a cognitive distortion affecting the way you experience and see the world. Okay. So, and the third is, um, does it tie into cognitive, uh, to, to cognitive dissonance as well? So, yeah. So dissonance is, I, I wouldn't say it's directly, it's, it's, I'm not going to categorize it as part of these big three. Okay. But it, it is related in the sense that one, it's, it's psychology based True. Two, yeah. mm. any number of these things or combination of these things can create dissonance. 
but so many things outside of bias and heuristics can create dissonance as well mm. i think the uh the heuristic that you might be using is the fact that cognitive is in front of dissonance and it's also in front of these other things so maybe it's related that's, that's a, a shortcut uh, yeah that 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 was an an, an example of cognitive heuristics there i just made it exactly just, it just made it just looked like it made sense in my head there so i'm like mm, so that looks like a, a three-legged stool that if you get right then yeah you might be able to come up with a good um ad copy and yeah really really <laughs> good value in this episode here definitely if you thought that you knew what copywriting was yeah you might definitely want to want to have a look again and maybe look into um the reasons why you know you're not getting your message out there you're not getting conversions is because you probably haven't invested in copywriting or a what yeah marketing is definitely the bigger umbrella where copywriting be belongs to that that that'll be yeah. that'd be a safe assumption yeah that's definitely a safe assumption so marketing is just the overall idea but there's so many things that come under marketing and then even then it's hard to say cuz i know that what i do isn't just copywriting then the value that i i provide or this even just the services that i provide to my clients is not just copywriting mm. because you can hire any copywriter off of fiverr that is not going to come up with a oh yeah i done that yeah me, right they're not going to come so up hard. with a 12 yeah they're not going to come up with a 12 page profile of your your target customer's psychological profile right okay like, they're gonna they're going to take some uh, head like headline tips that they learned in a book and some offer tips that they learned in a book and throw together an offer. It's actually and it becomes one of the interesting one of the interesting aspects of my job as a service provider to businesses is they say, why well, I need a copywriter and I'm happy to take their money as a copywriter. I'm happy to write for you, right? Well, we need a copywriter. Um, write a sales page for us. Okay, who's your target avatar? Uh, well, it's men between the age of 20 and 50 that are, you know, into like these seven different professions. And it's like, that's not good enough, dude. Like, mm. I need to, we need to know how this person thinks mm. we like, we need to know what this person thinks of when they wake up in the morning, not even just what they think of. How do they feel when they wake up in the morning? Mm. The first immediate feeling thought, thought feeling that they have in the morning. I need to and piss. It's important. That's probably, yeah. uh, I need to piss. <laughs> it might be, it might be for some, for some, I know for me for a while there, it was like literally just. <sighs> dread <laughs> exactly and like everything that that encompasses i mean the way that you talk to that person versus the person that just needs to piss the person who's like i need a piss that's a great position to be in mm. if you're waking up thinking that true yeah <laughs> actually yeah you got about... everything else kind of sorted yeah, think, <laughs> you're think, like all i gotta do is pee thinking about it now actually that's not that's the <laughs> yeah that's a good place to be if you're just worrying that's about a taking a piss be. in the morning and not like thinking about my fuck mortgage and all that that's shit. very yeah it's very enlightened <laughs> yeah it's very enlightened, enlightened. Well, i mean that, that person mug, has yeah. problems yeah that person yeah. has problems but they're just thinking about what's in like i just gotta pee dude man it, it sounds like my dad my dad's such a cool guy too he's just like what's the problem <laughs> don't really know so what's the problem you don't even know what the fucking problem is Go that's take just a piss. so fun. That's, 
that's the opposite of my dad man my dad has nothing but problems but um he has good to do guy he, yeah he's got to do it he, dad's got to do what he got to do yeah I guess yeah so yeah so just to, to 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 that point though i wanted to make the point that like copywriters aren't doing this but it's so necessary how are you going to how are you going to sell to someone who you don't even know you're selling to you have to know who you're selling to to put the words together in a way that land with them, that makes sense to them. Mm. So to give you an example with one of my clients, I successfully sold them on, and it was a very easy sale. Cause I said I would do it for free, <laughs> but it was, let's figure out your target avatar. Right. And the avatar is just your ideal customer. Okay. Um, we, I said, let, let's just do it. Like you need to do it. The only thing, like, I'm not going to charge you. The only thing you're paying is like four <laughs> hours of your time because it's a ridiculous process. Okay. To really figure this out. I mean, it, yeah. it's an investment. Sorry. Would you, well, let me just cut you off there. Would you walk us through in a very compressed and um, concise uh, manner? I'm pretty sure people out there are already interested in how do I create, because I, I went through the same process as well. Didn't take four hours. Now that's an eye-opening um, statement that you just put in there. <laughs> I think I took a good like hour and a half or something. Just I have a I have a, a buddy, a partner as well, who's um we're trying to build a show around uh, a new uh, basically a new podcast. And I said the first thing we have to do first is to figure out who's going to listen to this podcast. So would you I take... love talking to you because of this. Mm. This is like the third, fourth, fifth time that you've mentioned something that's like so smartly strategic, marketing wise thinking yeah. around business. That's like. Brilliant. so I, yes i, I was i, I was thinking like overview. yeah i was thinking like oh, dude we have to do this and he's like well, come on just we'll just get on the mic i'm like that's every podcast out there it's just two people talking or a person talking yeah but like what's the point so i said like because if we figure this out then we have a direction and it can at the end of the day we want to become a brand that has products and products are people are, are this are those things that people buy and that stuff is what goes in the pocket at the end of the day yeah. and it all starts with like who who are we who, who are we trying to to appeal to and right. then because if you get that wrong and then you're you're midway into the process and you're doing shows you're 50 episodes and whatnot and then you realize like oh, it's not these people like you said like the people who are who are um uh who are uh are, are part of our audience isn't exactly the people that we want to attract because in the beginning right. we, did, we didn't do our due diligence first into knowing who the people we want to listen, uh, we want in you know in in our sphere. So yeah, go ahead. Um, g give us a really so, good concise overview on how I'll to give create. You a quick overview of that. Yeah. So your customer so avatar. My, my process of this is something that I developed with with one of my partners, which was, um, we have several different. Uh, let's say blocks of the profile. And so the first one is that we have filter questions and we identify questions where everything else that we come up with in the profile has to go through these filters. If it's a no at any of these stages, it's not included in the profile. That's not our ideal customer. That's not our ideal avatar. Okay. Once we identify those, those questions that we ask, uh, and we ask at every stage of everything that we throw forward, we move on to the demographic. It's the most boring part of it for me. Like 
we say, you know, we, let's say we identify four questions, four filter questions, the demographics that we come up with, sorry, serious out on my wrist right now. Um, the, the demographics that we come up with get filtered through that. And so like, for example, if one of the questions is like, uh, yeah, give us an example, of, give us an example yeah. question in the filters. Yeah. So one of the questions might be like, uh, can this person, it's very simple. Can this person afford our products? Mm. Because, you know, maybe we sell $7 products, which the bulk of Western society could afford, mm -hmm. or maybe we sell $70,000 products. So two different things, right? And you don't want to put a $70,000 product in front of someone who can only spend $7. So uh, we ask, so let's say that's one of our questions when it comes to demographics. Well, is our 25 year olds making enough money to spend $70,000 on a product? Are there some? Sure. Those are called outliers, right? Malcolm Gladwell talked about that. There's always outliers. That's not the bulk of our customers. The bulk of our customers are going to be in their fifties. And even then, they're going to be, you know, 50 to 56 years old. So that gets added to the demographic, so on and so forth. So we go through demographics. That's the next stage. After demographics, we get to uh, character history. This is, we start asking for these demographics and these questions, along with the person that we want to actually be around how do they get to that point? What was their childhood like? What were their parents like? What was their schooling like? What was their best friend in middle school like? How, what experiences did they have throughout their formative years that led them to make, to be driven enough to make the money that's needed to buy a $70,000 product? And we get really detailed in that, right? From there, we go into one of my favorite parts which is we identify their MBTI profile. And the MBTI is the Myers-Briggs type indicator. You're sorry. You're so I just came up with the, the MBTI. It's just yesterday at work, I just talked to this guy and uh, he's a younger guy. And we got to talking about like, you know, what do you want to do? You're, you're young. Um, where do you want to be in, in like blah, blah. It's just, you know, just, just, locker room talk really and i came up mm -hmm. with and, and i told him have you ever tried taking an mbt mm -hmm. what is that it's, it's the only dsm-5 approved personality test that's out there mm -hmm. which is the myers-briggs sorry that, that i just um that was just so interesting because um it, it's like this the, some things are sent to you from nowhere like like this podcast right here right now yeah so your your availability heuristic might tell you to trust me more or lead you to trust me more because I'm mentioning the MBTI, mm. which you this is easily creepy, recall <laughs> as is having creepy. just had that conversation. Yeah. With someone, right. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. This is so, yeah, it's creepy. Yeah. It's a bit yeah. creepy actually. I, I, well, I, it's I, wild how the brain works. It's wild. It's wild. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So which is exactly why we get so deep into the brain work on this. Right. So, true, so with yeah. the MBTI for those listening that aren't, aren't too aware of it, it's a, uh, Let's see if I can I always have like I've written it in copy because I, you know, I sell this to clients. Mm. Like, let's do your avatar profile. And this is why you should care about the MBTI. So let me see if I can if I can sum it up in a way that makes sense, sounds attractive and isn't overly complicated. So there are 
16 personality traits, mm. uh, unique personality, or sorry, 16 unique personality profiles that are the combination of eight different traits. And it's two traits that are paired up each on a spectrum. Mm. So you have introverted and extroverted, intuitive and sensing, mm. feeling and thinking, and perceiving and judging. They're all essentially equal opposites. Uh, I'm not going to get into every single one of them because uh, it would just kind of take a while to get into the MBTI. Mm -hmm. But the idea is that people are scored based on their natural tendencies. True. Yeah. And it you get a four letter combination. Yeah. And that's your personality type. Mm -hmm. So for me, for example, I'm an ENFP. I'm extroverted, intuitive, uh, feeling and perceiving. Yeah, I think I'm an I. It changes though, because I took it twice, and it's so hard because it's a simple Likert scale, which is just like one, right. two, three, four, five, and put 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 your answer next to where you feel like you want to be. At first, yeah. I was an INFP. That was the first time I took the Myers Briggs, and that was I wanted. To, I was 22 at that time. Then I was. Uh, I think I took another one when I was 29. I think just after I got married, and I from INFP, I was now an ISTJ. I remember and i think that's the latest very different it's so different yeah I very mean... different so so it doesn't ideally right ideally it doesn't actually change now the tests that we take online depending on which company or not just online but even in person depending on which one you go through etc cetera, etc cetera, they all have different kind of data in an ideal world it's all a conglomerate of data from every mm -hmm. single test that's ever been taken but it all comes from different places. And, you know, you introduce, uh, if it's a human scored one, you introduce heuristics and bias and distortion and all of that kind of stuff. Um, so the way that we think about, it, cause this comes up, oh my God, I, every single time I do this, it, we always get hung up on the MBTI in the avatar profile. And it's uh, well, you know, cause I always make them identify themselves first. Yeah. So that's that the hard thing about right? it. Cause you want to look they, good with your, uh, with, you know, sorry, you, <laughs> you, you want to look good with yourself. Like, mm, actually, let me change that. Actually. I'm, I'm not yeah. actually that guy. I'm not that girl so, actually. <laughs> so there's not one that's better than the other, anything like that. And that's important to know um, because it's all just very natural. And so the way that I get past that, well, I can be, man, I can't tell you how many times I've heard, well, I'm both introverted and extroverted. Mm. It's like, um, no, you're not. You are naturally one and yeah. not the other. You're leaning you know, towards am, one or the other. Right. I'm both introverted and extroverted. Sure, there are days where I want to be alone. By and large, I want to be around other people. And uh, the best way to overcome that is to think if you were resource depleted, if you were hungry, cold, and naked mm. and scared and you had to make a life or death decision you're going to naturally fall on the thing that requires less caloric uh burning okay because your brain has to make the most uh, efficient decision yeah and that most efficient decision is going to be the most natural for you the one that is easiest to make mm. and so um so like for me for example i am extroverted yes I, and, and it's a spectrum too, right? Like if you're closer to the middle, like you're extroverted, but you appreciate your alone time. And that's kind of where I am too. You know, I appreciate my alone time, but I'll tell you, dude, if it's the fucking end of the world, yeah. I don't want to be the last fucking person on the planet. True. Yeah. I am going to need someone else. I can't even 
it's it's an argument with my wife if I have to go to the store by myself. I'm like, please come with, please come with. I don't want to go by myself. Okay. Not because I not because I physically need you with me, but I like hate being alone that okay. much. Like, please, you know. So, um, I would highly encourage you, and maybe we can even do it here if you're comfortable with it, to run through your MBTI. But let me first. Let me first keep going. So we identify the MBTI. Mm-hmm. And what's cool about that is separately outside of the exercise, I go and I do all kinds of research on the MB on that specific profile. I find what's the pop the percentage of the US pop or the world population or US population. Um, what's the percentage of gender? Like where is it split? Is it mostly women? Is it mostly men? Mm-hmm. Et cetera, et cetera. We kind of figure that out. Strengths, weaknesses of that personality, how they work. Um, how they operate in the workplace, how they operate in uh, romantic relationships, how they think about themselves, et cetera, et cetera. And so we get a lot of data from that. And then from there, we get into one of my other favorite parts of it, which is the psychographic, which is kind of like what I was talking about earlier. It's how they think, what is their psychological relationship with different, different things? Like what's their relationship with success and failure? You know, some people, are genuinely afraid of being successful maybe because success comes with responsibility and they're afraid of responsibility Mm, work right true and so the way you talk to that person is very different from the uh, person who wants to be successful who's like ready for it and seeking it yeah that's so true yeah right you can't sell to both of them Mm. you can try Mm. so uh so that's the psychographic information and then uh, we get into, I, I typically develop a fictional biography off of all the information that we identified throughout the mm. whole profile. We'll come up with a name. We'll find a picture to match this person that we think that they would look like. And we come up with a biography because then when you're writing to this avatar, you can pretend you are writing to a very real person with a name mm. and a face and a history yeah, and everything. And I will tell you just as an example of that, of the power of this with one of my clients, we did this and then uh, s- immediately started implementing it, changed the copy overnight. The next thing that I wrote for them was only to this person. And I drew very, very uh, bold lines of the sand that said, this is who I'm talking to. I'm not talking to anyone else. We increased their email revenue by 122% when we compared the the email sales before and after for a, a set time period before and after that avatar exercise, mm. which proves it's powerful. It works. Yeah, <laughs> it exactly. Works, proves yeah. the importance of knowing who you are selling to. Yeah. And it goes beyond just selling because it goes to, um, there's different forms of marketing, you know, there's, uh, and the biggest form that I work in is direct response marketing. And the thing that sets direct response marketing aside from other forms of marketing is you ask someone to take a specific behavior, usually through a call to action. Mm-hmm. So you ask them to click or you ask them to sign up or you ask them to buy. And the cool thing about direct response marketing and mixed with the internet is that you get a lot of data that you can measure. So, you know, when something's actually working, when something's not working, 
Mm, yeah. Change it. Yeah, yeah. Um, going back to the um to to Facebook ads, like it tell you like how many people added to cart, and then how many people as opposed the conversions and um even YouTube does that now. Yeah. You know, just like how, how the percentage of people um your the click through rate so you'd say like oh, if it's a if it's a high click through rate it's probably a good thumbnail or it's probably a good title mm -hmm. and then um if they stayed on for longer which is what youtube is wanting um that's probably good content you know right. or if they clicked off after a minute and a half then maybe the hook was good so that got them hooked for a, a whole minute which is actually a lot of, a lot of time you know, if yeah. you're trying to get people, you know, interested in whatever you're trying to say or whichever, whatever you're trying to show them. And um, it, yeah, it goes on. Yeah. So, yeah. Interesting. How, how, what, what are the other types of marketing? Since you mentioned that there are several. So, Tim, well, there's a hundred. I know. So when I was bringing this up, I was like, I'm, he's going to ask. I'm going to have to remember. And it's so funny <laughs> because I've had the conversation before. So big, big businesses like Coca-Cola, Pepsi, all of them, they don't do direct response marketing. Uh, they do brand awareness. I, I think there's a different, mm, there's real brand I awareness see, is yeah, the thing yeah. they focus on, right? There's a different name for the marketing and it's escaping me right now. Thanks to the Sapporo and Boddington's that I had tonight. But <laughs> um, so the difference is like someone like Coke or a company like Coke or, or big companies. And this is what a lot of small businesses end up trying to emulate because they see Nike do it or they see Coke doing it and it's successful for them. So it must work is they dump tons of money into advertising mm. that doesn't ask the person to do anything. It just tries to keep them on their mind and that's brand awareness. Okay. And so like, if you see a Coke advertisement, it'll say um, whatever their stupid slogan is, right? It'll be like a red. We know that Coke is red and white. Yeah. It'll have kind of a squiggly, little white line because that's part of their brand and it'll say fucking whatever Coke's. it's great it? it's horrible yeah, for you coke tagline what is it say i think it's like um same original taste is that the one that they have on is now? that yeah same original taste that sounds about right <clears throat> i keep finding old ones dude if coke if you tagline if you're a if you're able to like taste the feeling oh oh wow actually that After was 17 years they changed their slogan the from open happiness to taste the feeling open happiness yeah that sounded well dude if you were if you were able if you're a brand and you were able to leverage fucking christmas dude you're set <laughs> oh you think it's santa the santa you're Claus set coke? yeah and he's not even red and now people think he's red because of Coke. That's that's true, right? Is that the story behind? It? I don't know. I don't know if that's the story. You so know, this, it's funny yeah. that you. It's funny you mentioned that because my mom has a set of Santas from across the world, and it's got like years. It has the country and the year on it, uh -huh. which I assume. And this is a a total cognitive issue, heuristic, an assumption. Uh, I assume that the year is like the emergence or of that official image of Santa. And so there's like the red Santa from the United States is like 1920 something. Yeah. Which but is there's when like Santa's in the 1800s where it's like they're wearing cream color. Yeah, exactly. Like That's green. when what's his name? Yeah. It's letter P. His Charles name Dickens. Is. Uh, no, the guy is who, um, no, the, the guy who actually invented Coke. Is it like. Oh, I don't know. Something, yeah. Let's see. Let me Jamie that. 
do that and and uh, do that and see when that when when he came up because uh john stith pemberton pemberton yeah so see when 1886 and now go back to your mom's collection of santas and see when santa started wearing red because he leveraged christmas and for some reason everybody that's stuck that's the reason why Santa's wearing red now is because Coca-Cola's red. It says Santa, the tradition of him wearing red began in the 1870s with the American cartoonist Thomas Nast who introduced the red suit and cap for a lining and buckled black belt. I mean, this is this is uh, from that's, The Guardian. So that's take pr- it for what that is. <laughs> <laughs> And that's pretty close to when that Pemberton well, guy think, was around. And um, when was uh, Christmas Carol? I mean, the idea of this is totally off topic, but I'm totally fascinated by stuff like this because mm. the I, I've read about this where the idea of Santa Claus comes from Father Christmas, who came from like, I mean, this is a uh, actually to keep it on. Let's keep it on target. And yeah, on track okay, here, we'll try. Is that we could uh, bring in uh, the idea of Carl Jung and archetypes Mm, mm, mm. archetypes being being what he described as primordial images which took a really long time for me to even kind of understand what that means um and i don't know if i'm just like slow or what it is but my understanding of of what a Jungian archetype is is something that is so ingrained mm. in our consciousness yeah our psyche yeah and our psyche for so long through evolution and it's stuck and stuck and stuck mm. and so um he identified very specific archetypes and when you learn about them you can you can start seeing the world through that lens and i don't know if it's if we're just if it's a cognitive distortion in that sense of like i am intentionally seeing the world through the lens of archetypes or if it's something that is actually there under the surface, but it is really fascinating. So Santa Claus or St. Nicholas, there was the whole, I mean, in Europe, they had the whole pagan tradition mm. of Christmas tide uh, before Christianity. Yeah. And uh, it wasn't called Christmas. It was um, uh, like winter solstice. Winter solstice. Celebrations. Yeah. That was it. Celebrations it was some... back then. Mm. And, and they had the idea of like a, a sort of Christmas spirit, Father Christmas. It just wasn't Christmas, right? And Charles Dickens in A Christmas Carol dressed Santa Claus or really the embodiment of Father Christmas in green for whatever reason. I don't know what mm. green represents, but... So yeah, I mean, there's these archetypes of like, of that. And you can, you know, there's people that try to, um, there's, when it comes to marketing, there's people that try to integrate the idea of archetypes into into copywriting into marketing and i don't think it's really any different than the way that i do with mbti the biggest difference is that the mbti is actually used by many intelligence agencies across the world Mm -hmm. to profile their targets which tells me that it is operationally sound to do meaning it has it's dsm5 specific outcomes yeah dsm is like an archetype is kind of yeah. up in the air about it's a bit yeah it's a bit more of a theory but um now it's a school i think that's a, that, right. that's a better term for it because some other psychologists psychometricians go with different people um right. yeah there's some freudian just like all about yeah now you've been 
you know, you, 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 have, you have an oh, uncle. Sexual repression. Yeah, you have an uncle. You're, you probably got raped. That's so, I'm sorry. <laughs> Should have mentioned that. This is demonetized by now, by this second now. Yeah, as opposed to like Jungian, which is like, oh, we'll go through like, you know, we'll go through your um your thing. It's probably familial. It's probably, you yeah. know. Yeah, I mean, and- I, I love Jungian psychology, man. I've read a lot of his work. And it's been very eye-opening on a personal level, especially mm. through like dream interpretation and stuff uh, like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's all, to me, that's all such like a, a personal, nearly spiritual thing. Mm. It's like where spiritual meets psychological. Yeah, it's hard to, yeah, it's, it's very easy to blur the lines between those two. A um, big mm-hmm. part of it, I'm pretty sure it's all about semantics and just the words in between, but yeah if there's a succinct word that exists out there that marries them both i haven't come across it so it's still psychological slash spiritual yeah that's interesting because i think that really is kind of the struggle that Jung had in his work as someone who was a scientist by Mm. trade yeah because he was a psychiatrist which is medicine true but then he was very spiritual and explored the unconscious, which you could say is the spiritual side of the psyche. Mm. Uh, And he, I do not believe he was a Christian, but he used a lot of Christian symbology, uh, ideology, symbolism and icons and all of this stuff to get his point across. Mm. But then he also, you know, at the same time would use uh, uh, other like Eastern religions, Hinduism or, Mm. or Buddhism and stuff Mm. as well. Mm. Uh, similar to like, let's say Alan Watts. Oh, Alan Watts. Not a big fan of Alan Watts, but I do appreciate it. No, I mean, not really. I'm, I probably haven't just like completely immersed myself in his work, but to me, don't hate me for this, but to me, Alan Watts is like the original go with the flow guy. (laughs) Don't even try. (laughs) Don't even try like the way don't, but, but then again, he goes off. He, he's like saying like don't even try and like if you're stressing it you're doing it wrong but then again mm-hmm. on the other hand he'll go like the price of not waiting uh if you if you go for an instant coffee we talked about coffee off air mm-hmm. if you if you if you opt to get an instant coffee as opposed to getting you know taking the time to grind the beans out and uh, to to steep them properly you compare the both they're different two different worlds there's that psychological dissonance or that cognitive dissonance again, right? Like you just, you just mentioned two kind of hypocritical aspects of his teachings. Exactly. Yeah. So that's like, there. yeah, I, I think a, the one of the best um, uh, recent examples that I can cite is Jordan Peterson. Because mm. for all his work, he's great and all that, but um, he'd be the last person that I would figure who would go into a, um, a mental breakdown because he, he didn't titrate his medication. He just went cold Turkey. He yeah. stopped all his medications. Like he thought that he could just Jordan Peterson it out. <laughs> he didn't. Yeah. That's what he did. That's what happened that's was he was, yeah, yeah, yeah. he was on Benzo. He was like in a coma. But, yeah. yeah. And he got really stressed and then he got, he, I mean, he got mixed up probably cause he was up and coming. He had all this attention and then his wife was diagnosed with cancer. And then, um, I mean, you should know this by first year psychology school 
like or sci- sci- yeah. psychiatry school you're not supposed to cold turkey psych meds you're supposed yeah. to gently uh taper them and then until you're off them you're not because you'll pin you'll you'll just go like whoop whoop you'll pendulum and it's just gonna mess with you so that put him in like a uh, a state it. for two years yeah i i'm a i'm a I was a big Jordan Peterson fan. Like when I was furloughed from my the company I worked for for three months, uh-huh. and I remember reading quite a bit. Like I read his first book, The Twelve Rules book, and I read yeah. Maps of Meaning, which is a fantastic book as mm, well. I haven't I haven't read that. Um, that it's like a textbook for one of his classes. I mean, it's it's ridiculous. It's super Jungian. It's super about archetypes and narrative. And it's actually been something that's been useful as far as marketing and my my work goes and also just kind of outlook on life was one of the big takeaways I have from that one is uh, how important narrative is to the human mind. Every single way that we understand our experience, that we understand the future, that we understand anything comes down to the story we tell ourselves. Jordan Peterson isn't the first one to point this out. I mean, I think this has been sufficiently pointed out. All Earl Nightingale? A, a, Earl Nightingale is like, you know I, know. I don't know Earl Nightingale. Earl Nightingale. You probably heard his voice. But, um, oh, so that's Earl Nightingale. Well, listen to um, Leading the Field. That's a good one. That's a good one. That'll, uh, that's, a, that's a good um, that's a good uh, recording to, to fall asleep to. Because even if you're asleep, you, you, some of that will definitely... Filter no, down what? to your to your brain. Fil- um, leading the field. I have heard this guy. Mm, that's a good. Listen to... So it's basically saying the you know you know the quotes that you see on Instagram are like the quality of your thoughts will dictate the quality of your life. Yeah, he, which he's is, that guy. Uh, he's that guy. That's also. Uh, you Marcus are what you Aurelius. tell yourself every day. You are. You yeah, will be that stoic philosophy. Yeah, you are what you you are a collective of your thoughts. So it depends mm-hmm. on like uh, he he likens the, the the mind into like a field where it depends on what you want to plant. You want to plant potatoes, you'll get potatoes more likely. Or you could um you want to plant diamonds in it, then yeah, I mean physically that would be impossible. So that's kind of like what Narrative, I, yeah. I had mentioned it earlier at the beginning of our our conversation. Like you you get what you give. Like we have these I we understand these ideas that have been around for a long time, and we just kind of say them in different ways. Um, with maps of meaning by Jordan Peterson, it's not necessarily just that. It is an aspect of that, but it's more about the overall narrative structure of thought and of experience and mm. existence to the point where it manifests in every important aspect of life like he gets real into how the bible or any religious text is written in narrative structure for a reason because we understand the world through narrative structures Mm. he gets a lot of influence from joseph campbell with Mm. the hero with a thousand faces was it hero with a thousand faces the the hero's journey yeah the hero's journey yeah i've heard that Yeah. yeah that was joseph campbell and um where he identified like he he did this meta analysis of like just thousands and thousands of myths all throughout history and stories and everything and that's how he had identified the hero's journey that pretty much every story followed the same narrative structure mm. and it's the narrative structure that we follow in our our normal lives yeah when you start seeing it that way it's pretty crazy mm. like the call like it all starts with the call to adventure 
Mm. And you, the hero has two choices. The hero can accept the call or can ignore the call. Yeah. Mm. And then, so then you have the guys talking about how most people, it's very popular in the podcasting space or in the YouTube creator space of like talking about trying to get you to act on your call to adventure by talking about how most people ignore the call to adventure, which I don't think is actually incorrect either. Mm. It's just kind of become a cliche at this point, but it is also true. Like we're all, we all kind of have this small voice in our head that tells us something. And if you look at that as a call to adventure, how often do you ignore the voice in your head? Mm. You know, telling you, you know, that you should, get out of bed when you first wake up but you're like ah just five more minutes or whatever and an hour goes by you're still in bed mm. <sighs> story of our lives and there you go <laughs> but that yeah but yeah that's a, that's a good one actually it's like trying to push something by pushing the opposite and then you know giving it to the um you know to the consumer to leave leave it up to them to 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 either take action or not but more most likely they probably it's a safe way to not put your customers off too, right? If yeah, you can make a business of saying you're a fucking piece of shit and you know you're a piece of shit. And you know, mm-hmm. I've I've worked with companies that do that. Yeah. And it's dude, it's wild to see. It's seriously wild to see. Like, I mean, I wrote emails that's like you will always be a loser unless you do this thing. And then you see like $900 in sales on like a $200 product or a hundred dollar product. Okay. And you're just like in one day, you know, (laughs) and you're like, man, I just like insulted you, Mm. but okay. Like if that's what it takes you to act. Right. Um, so you can make a business of doing that, but it's a very safe way to, to creating that common enemy too, or like the other, I mean, it's, it's so, it's so ingrained in us. I don't know why people act like this is a surprise at this point. Like when we complain about like, well, Donald Trump is xenophobic or, or, you know, whatever else people complain about. That's just the first example that came to my mind is like, well, are you surprised? Like we've done this mm. literally since coming down from the trees. We are discriminatory creatures. We have to discriminate. True. We have in-group bias and out-group bias. Mm. We trust the people that are in our in-group. Our in-group might be people that only look like us. Our in-group might be people that look different, but we have similar values. If they're in our in-group, we trust them. Mm. If they're not in our in-group, it's danger. Mm. And it's not a conscious thought. It is an immediate emotional reaction the same way that you know buying is an emotional reaction it's an unconscious decision that is made that we either rationalize with or rationalize against mm-hmm. yeah it's sort of like you know <clears throat> i think it's sort of like the um just to add to that point the uh the pathway now to like making a uh, a proper online presence is to build community around it you know yeah, and, and you build an in group yeah, you build an in-group of people who you don't even have to sell to. They'll ask for it. Yeah, I've been part of some Facebook groups of um, just some just some creators on YouTube as well, where everybody's just like, I can't believe there's so many freaks in this group. And I thought I was the only one. <laughs> like, there's five thousand well, of us. <laughs> and the and the funny thing is, the fastest way to build an in-group is to identify the out-group. And it doesn't have to be an evil. It doesn't have to be an evil thing. Like those people are bad. 
but it it can be as simple as like just like a process of elimination not, yeah yeah or like 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 something asinine something just totally inane like well you know i don't at least i don't fucking buy arm and hammer toothpaste mm. like who fucking buys arm and hammer to- i don't know that's just a stu- i do buy arm and hammer toothpaste <laughs> by the way that, that is my brand of mm. choice that's your in group <laughs> no yeah, that is my in group and you know yeah. what i don't trust people who buy aim toothpaste <laughs> okay aim is disgusting mm. <laughs> it's like i don't know i hope you're not an aim guy no, yourself I'm just colgate really from colgate just, All right, what's the what's the weird tricolored one? That's actually the that's, worst. I think toothpaste. that's Pepsodent, actually. The, yeah, that's the worst. To, worst but, is like red, green, and white. I'm so happy that you mentioned that because there's another book that I I was I'm a really big fan of. It's um, um Atomic Habits. Oh yeah, James Charles, Clear. Oh no no the other one then the one that James Clear built of of from which is um Power of Habit by Charles oh. Duhigg. That's a good one. And it's it's it it sounds like a motivational book, but it's really um it's really a marketing book. I think he goes through like, you know, just you know, just the little ticks. It's just habits, really. Mm-hmm. It's just habits that 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 you know businesses leverage on, with the knowledge of people have certain habits, and if you know what those habits are, you can hack it. And they've been yeah. doing it from since since time was a thing. Pepsodent is a good example. Okay, you might have a different. You you might not be you might not be trading your arm and hammer tomorrow. But let me tell this story the story of Pepsodent, and I'm really hoping that it's Pepsodent. So they there was a sales guy who who um who worked for Pepsodent, and at the time where toothpaste wasn't what we know now, which was minty. Mm-hmm. Toothpaste used to just be sodium bicarbonate and some glycerin just to keep all that together, and then you brush your teeth with it, and then it just incre- it increases um, surface tension like soap does, and then the dirt goes away. And mm-hmm. they were at, they were wondering like, why the fuck are we not selling this product even when it's such a simple basic need that people need to keep their teeth clean because it it you know it, it leads to cavities and that hurts and that leads to dental bills and whatnot. This is such a good product because it's a necessity, but why aren't we selling it? Mm-hmm. So Pepsodent hired this guy and um, he went, he, he did like a, uh, he, he did research around this thing. I'm, I'm completely just, um, uh, I'm, I'm completely botching the book, but um, from how I remember it. So he said like, why don't we, um, why don't we add mint to, to, um, to Pepsodent, to, to, to the toothpaste? So why would why would we want to do that? Because after a person brushes their teeth, if you add mint into it, the mouth actually feels clean. And that would trigger the habit of brushing your teeth because you get that sensation of cleanliness at the end of a toothbrush. So That's pretty revolutionary cuz now all all toothpaste have to do that yeah but you'd think that the mint was the thing that cleaned your teeth which is not mint doesn't do shit that's so funny it doesn't do shit i'd rather have just the i i I just have the base ingredients that's actually why i get the uh i don't like the you don't yeah there's some not a good taste 
I mean, it's like, have you ever put hydrogen peroxide in your mouth? It tastes, oh, yeah. it's, it like doesn't taste bad. It just doesn't taste good. It like, doesn't yeah, taste good. Yeah. But it's that yeah. sensation at the end because, you know, in that book, Charles Duhigg, he goes through like, if you want to make a habit, a thing, you have to make it these three things. You have to, you have to, first, you have to make it easily accessible. You have to make it attractive and then you have to make it satisfying. So if you make that's these, the key right there is the satisfaction. You make that's it; a, it's tied to a feeling. That that the the last part, the satisfaction, is what ties the loop in. Yeah, I that's see what that. completes the loop in the you know in in the habit habit formation. So you want to make it easy. So let's say I I made a YouTube video about this, uh, saving money, mm -hmm. saving money. So make it easy. Don't save fifty percent of your cut because like. If, You'll go through like your your paycheck in two days. I know I do because I got bills and whatnot and responsibilities. If you save fifty percent of that and then you feel like like a, a homeless guy for the next fifteen days, you're waiting for the next cut, you wouldn't go through it anymore because it's just too fucking hard. So mm -hmm. you end up just not doing it or picking your savings and not saving money at the end. So make it easy. Take like something stupid like ten percent. I mean, you you can mm -hmm. save ten percent of whatever you're getting. Yeah. Make it yeah. So after you make it easy, you make it you make it um attractive. That could be something you could you could hack your brain as like I make it tangible. I'm I still keep a, a piggy bank because that's the only way that I could save money. Because <laughs> if that's it's just cool, if it screens on a number, it's not real. For me, that's it's not so real. Funny, because you know what's attractive to me is like a a briefcase full of cash. Which is a totally not very secure way of saving money. True, but like, I feel the same. Would look really cool. Yeah, and it, and, and to me, like grow, and you watch it grow, and to me, like I don't wanna, I don't wanna, I, I just don't wanna pick it because I just, I just, I just like watching it. I just like seeing it full. Mm -hmm. So that makes it attractive to me, and at the end, I make it satisfying. So the way I hack that was, I just printed out a stupid Excel sheet. Fifty-two weeks. So week one, I add, I, I save something like $5 and all I do is on the next week, I just add the principal amount, which is five plus five plus five plus five plus five. If you do that, you'll at the end of a, a whole year, you'll end up with 52, you'll end up with something like five, uh, something like $2,000 or something like that. So what I do is like every time I put money in there, I just, the, just a simple action of just taking a marker and just erasing that week that's so satisfying to me and i just want to get through the next one and that it sounds it, like a very s when we go back to the mbti that sounds like a very s thing <laughs> sensing yeah mm -hmm. so at the yeah. end of six months it grows because that five if, if you if you do the math that five dollars goes up to like 700 now i need to keep 700 dollars a week now that's a lot to save mm -hmm. for a week but I've already done six months. I just want to see it through. So you yeah. don't actually have to fight it anymore because after the, at, at the end of six months, you've already created the habit, which only takes about 66 times to, to create a new one. That's pretty brilliant, man. I'm going to have to... Charles Duhigg. That's a good book, yeah. actually. And you should yeah, definitely get that in your arsenal because there's so many marketing... I was just like, oh, my God. So that's what they did. Like There was this company. I think it's... um one of the big box stores in America where all they did was watch tape. Just watch mm. tape of just watch CCTV of people walking in 
walking in a, a supermarket and they deduced after all these poor hacks were forced to basically sit down and watch tape when you enter do this next time you go you go to to Costco or whatever when you enter um when you enter a a supermarket 80% or something stupid like that 80% of people turn right <laughs> turn right so you'd see yeah. so they'd put the doors on the left side of the store so when people enter you turn left there's just a shelf and the and the wall there's nothing else to see so people turn right so that 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 area of the store is now prime location for whatever you want to sell because that's the first thing they're going to see and yeah, they did all they did actually... was just watch tape and just like oh why are why is everybody turning because you'd think like put the door in the middle of the store so they see like everything when you enter they did that in the beginning, it, and then like they found out they they go they turn right all the time. They just go right. Everybody turns right. No one ever goes left. That's so funny that you mentioned that because we do that with funnels. Because we'd still do that digitally. The majority of people have just click this right. Brand. Yeah, I mean it's not it's not quite random. There's I'm sure there's a reason behind it. I don't know about the turning right whether that's associated with being right-handed and the majority of people are right-handed or if it has to do with like if it's america we drive on the right true so kind of yeah everything's almost like right biased mm. um you know some might say left-handed people are wrong-handed i don't know <laughs> yeah uh, historically like babies used to be taught like if, if you that, wrote on your yeah, left you used an... to be punished for it <laughs> i i i honestly wonder why because i never it's like what's so wrong with being left-handed i always made the joke that left-handed was wrong-handed because i think because of the historical thing but it's like but who cares like why right but uh you you had mentioned earlier that you wanted to talk about funnels and i think it's a good segue into that in that we actually do that with funnels because english readers read left to right and so naturally when we are presented with images we tend to start at the top left and our eyes scan to the top right uh -huh. and then it makes a z shape going sh diagonally down to the left and then to the right again and so uh when they measure people's eye movement that's typically what they see in english uh native english speakers mm. whereas like if you're japanese yeah it's like different start now. at the right and go down yeah or if up to traditional. down if you're chinese if you have traditional kanji or something yeah yeah i learned about heat maps as well before and that was pretty interesting, but I was like, this is some matrix yeah. shit, man. <laughs> it's just like yeah, heat heat maps. Typically what we see with that is where people's mouse or their like, or their taps on their phone is. Mm. Whereas we're talking about um, research that's conducted to track eye movement. And now we have cameras like phone, phone cameras track eye movement mm. because they have actually pretty cool tech of like the, I know iPhone has the attention thing. It'll dim your screen if it doesn't track your eyes looking at the screen, which is oh, yeah. really interesting yeah. and cool to save battery. Yeah. And I don't think that they share that information or that data with outside advertisers or anything, but um, we have enough data to know that like English speakers tend to do that Z pattern mm. shape. And so the best, most efficient, efficiently set up websites will be that top left is the, typically the first whatever the first thing you want them to see which your is logo. often the brand yeah. the logo brand, yeah straight to the right should be your call to action that you want mm. them to do mm. and then when you cut diagonal down the headline 
Mm. They're going to cut through the headline and that should be the next thing that they see. And that headline should grab them emotionally. Mm. And then at the bottom of that Z is the call to action again. Mm. That's and then they so, just kind of do that. Back do, you, do you think, let me ask you, do you think that that camera, that front facing camera is mm. always turned on? Yes. Oh, definitely it is. Uh, it has to, right? It has yeah. to, because you know that that I'm pretty sure you've seen that Netflix show, uh, documentary, Social Dilemma, where like, yeah, I didn't even click it; I just looked at it. But they measure the milliseconds that you stayed there. It's crazy. And then you you scroll up, but one one good thing I'm 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 subconsciously always trying to sell people on Apple products because I really think it's a superior device. I but also, products, but yeah. yeah, but also like, if you because my. my mm, my, I think my wife at one point was um no, but she's on an Apple now actually. My I I can see it with my friends who own an Android. And this is just the bro research that I did on my own. <laughs> and they just have way more stuff than I do, because they're mm -hmm. just sold more. Because mm -hmm. it's you're owned by you're owned by Google. Your your own Android is owned by Google, and Androids Android phones don't have that that um that uh that option after ios 13 i want to say where it says ask mm -hmm. app not to track yeah I love which that. was a bit yeah i love, I love that, that too i'm not being sold on any I, i'm still there's still some some things that filter down but i'm not out there fucking buying dog collars with some neon lights or whatever and my friend's like why do you need this for uh TikTok made me buy it or Instagram made me buy it, which is a real thing if you hashtag that's how I look for for things to sell before. Mm -hmm. I learned it from that Aussie coach that I had. Uh quickly go to Instagram, quickly go to TikTok, he told me. Okay, I'm here. I think it was just Instagram then. Um now now hashtag Instagram made me buy it. That's and then you'd be you'd just be inundated with just drop shipping bullshit products. Instagram is so sponsored post based now that it bothers me. Yeah, like what do, do you, you remember when? In, well, remember when Instagram your Instagram feed literally was just the people that you followed. Yeah, 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 yeah. In 2020, I deleted Instagram because uh, I was uh, it was like overwhelming to mm. be just so many people talking political and all of that stuff so i was like fuck this i went like off the grid when i when i was furloughed i was like i'm not doing political shit mm. i'm getting off social media i'm like the covid is at the height of covid and all this shit i'm fucking reading i'm gonna chill on my couch and yeah. read books mm. and i read like brave new world which was just wild to read at that time um but i came back to instagram this year or not 2023 at the end of 2022 i downloaded instagram created a new profile again and i was surprised to see that the vast majority i would say like 80 percent or if not higher of my feed is sponsored posts yeah posts that are only there because someone paid for them to be there. true and yeah. it's either selling stuff ah, or yeah. like suggested posts yeah true. and i don't i don't enjoy it as much because i don't see like the people that I actually want to see now there is an aspect of it that i do enjoy i i do enjoy the curated like when it gets to know you a, a bit more yeah and you start seeing posts that you actually like mm. predictive posts that you like 
Now it's really interesting and it creates cognitive dissonance for me because I was very much like, I don't want them to own my data and to use that against me and blah, 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 blah. But then like, it's also really convenient to have a feed that, that knows you well enough yeah, that puts stuff you great like stuff in front of you. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So yeah. Uh, yeah. It's a tough, it's a dissonance. Right. And so the conclusion that I come to the rationalization that I come to is that you have to be a conscious consumer. That is a, yeah, you have a, a responsibility to be a conscious consumer. If mm. you don't know how copywriting or marketing works, even on a basic level, you're helpless. If you don't know how it works you're going to be used true if if the majority of people know how it works then they are intentionally engaging in the businesses that they want to engage in which also keeps the businesses honest and not that the business is set out to be dishonest but business is business and business is based around sales we true. need to get sales yeah if it's if you're in a down economy and you're not getting sales you're going to start doing whatever you can to get sales mm. right if people are conscious and it keeps the business honest, then there's checks and balances so that the consumers are honest with themselves. The businesses are honest with the consumers and themselves. And it creates a much more symbiotic relationship mm. rather than a parasitic relationship. That's such a good the, point. Yeah. The parasitic relationship can go either way. The customers can be parasitic or the businesses can be parasitic. Mm. That's such or a both at point. the same yeah, time, it, and then you it have a does it, it does fall on like at the end of the day, it's it does fall on that call to action. If if you are consciously taking that action, but that's so tough, though, man. You're basically teaching people. Then it's so. T I'm thinking it's just yeah, that's tough. I mean, it's ideal. Well, that's that's why I am trying to simplify it as much as possible, mm -hmm. and that is what, as I told you at the beginning when we first started recording, that my business is still service providing. I still do copywriting and I'm, I'm, I've been training other copywriters to work in the method, the, the effective method that I've uh, been part of developing and I'm evolving. Them. I'm going to keep that, but I'm also teaching people mm. what I know and teaching them how to start seeing the marketing, whether that's because they want to be copywriters themselves, which is really more of my target, my target audience is the person who was like me fed up with their corporate job, fed up with job to job to job to job, not being fulfilled and not being happy. Maybe they liked writing or were decent at writing. And really they just want to own their own time. That's the thing that I love the most. I don't think I mentioned that at all in this uh, podcast, but like the thing that I love the most about doing what I do is I now own my time. I don't have to fucking ask anyone to take vacation, which I didn't realize until I quit my job was always hanging over my head. Just the simple act of saying, can I have this time to myself mm. to me is so demeaning and is so like oppressive, not in, and, and I want to separate that by saying like, I do not think I don't agree with necessarily fully with the people that say like oh we're wage slaves or anything like that it's oppression all of this it can again it can be a symbiotic relationship mm. having like being an employee can be a symbiotic relationship you can be very fulfilled doing it i was not fulfilled being an employee i did not like having to ask to do anything with time 
because time was something I felt like no one owned. It just was. And so now did I, I go to Vegas to visit family. I go to the East coast to be with clients. I go all over just to, to go enjoy it. I spend Mm -hmm. time with my newborn daughter, spend time with my wife every single day and not have to worry about being anywhere has been like the greatest joy. I always go, I, I always, um, when I got younger guys, like not really asking me for advice, but you know, we get to talking <laughs> like this after about two, three beers, I always yeah. tell them. And, and when, when, when they're at that phase in their life where they're, they're just about to get into the system, which is, you know, getting a job and starting, start paying rent. And, you know, you could, you could, you could like, um, go further and tell them like, Oh, be a productive member of society. Mm-hmm. I always tell them, this is one thing that I've, I think I'm still lucky because I, I discovered it before I turned 30 was the trade. I always tell them the trade, which is uh, again, not a new concept. It's been out mm-hmm. there forever, but people just, uh, you know, by whatever circumstances in their life or beliefs or just, you know, where they are in general in their lives completely ignore or probably they just don't see the value in it. And the trade is always remember when you're about to choose your first job, or if you're, you're in it, you're, 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 you're in the shit right now and you want to change, keep the trade in mind. And the trade is whenever you're going to choose a job, remember that you are trading the thing that you need the most versus the thing that is most precious to you. So the thing that you need the most is money. Mm -hmm. And you're going to trade that with the thing that is most precious to you, which is your time. Right. So when you're offered the job and they give you the the, the package and you look at it, and it's so easy to get blinded by the zeros or the value, you know, the, the, the dollar value, but ask yourself, how much time is this company request um, asking for you to give up to get this much? And yeah. ask yourself at the end of the day, are you winning? Did you actually win in the trade? So let's say you're offered 60000 a year for a first job, which is, I'm not, I don't know how it is in the U.S. now, but if it's in U.S. dollars versus here in New Zealand, that's actually a pretty substantial amount. That's pretty. You could you, you could definitely live off that. Let's say you're offered fifty thousand, something something a bit more uh, a bit more rounded. If they offer you fifty thousand, you know, dollars a year, this might be your first job, and it's like holy shit, I've never oh, I've never had that much money. But you're you're you know you're you're um you're requested to stay in the office for let's say you're 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 expected to work at least fifty sixty hours a week, or push mm-hmm. it up to eighty hours a week, which is insane. That's sixteen hour days. Yeah. Did you actually win? Did you win the trade? Did right. you win the trade? Now, if you're younger, you might be able to stay there for a bit longer because you, you've got youth. Yeah. But that might appeal you're, to people who are quite older now. And like, mm, did you win the trade? You're there? speaking to a really powerful uh, concept that was taught to me as the time value of money. Mm. Right. And it was taught to me when I first got into copywriting. I wrote these emails. It was three emails that sold a uh, $700 product. And this, these emails were like 10 to 15 sentences each. They were very short and they were pushing 
lightly pushing a $700 product. And I think over the course of three days sold about three to $4,000. Right. And, um, the guy that I wrote them for, he asked me how long it took me to write those emails. And I don't remember what it was at the time, but I told him, but anyway, we, we calculated it out that if that revenue went to me, if it was my product, yeah. that was $700. I think I know where you're going with this. Time, yeah. Yeah. I made about $900 per hour. That's right. That's incredible. So that took you right. about, that took you what, three hours to make it? <laughs> yeah. I think, yeah. And I think it, it might've been even a little less. And he was like, he was like, now let's calculate your current. Cause I was making salary. I was still at the, co the company. He's like, now let's calculate your current hourly. Cause that, and I had never thought about my current hourly rate. Mm -hmm. Cause mm -hmm. I was making a salary. You don't, mm -hmm. I just didn't think about it. True. And I was making like $22 an hour. So I was like, so, and that was $22 an hour at 40 hours a week, which I was regularly putting more like 50 between yeah. 50 and 60 hours a week. Right. Which means my hourly rate went down, go down. Yeah, exactly. And so now I work less than I worked at the corporation. I make more than I made right now, just a little bit more. I, I, I make like. 20 grand more than I was making per year mm. at the company. I work less and my hourly rate, I started charging like 150, like for meetings or whatever. And I'm like, and people pay it. Right. And I'm like, I used to make 15 to $20 an hour. Yeah. Like the numbers. That's speak. wild. To me. Yeah. That's wild. Yeah. That's wild. The, the numbers do speak for themselves. So shit yeah it's not it's not all about money but just like you said the trade is such a powerful concept like you're trading the thing you need the most which is money for the thing that's most precious which is time mm. i have always had a knack of finding this the easiest way to do something mm. when i was a recruiter i didn't want to work 50 hours a week and my peers were made were working often more than that so I found ways to automate things like I'd invest time in trying to figure out how to automate something or make something easier, whatever it was. And it helped a lot. And I, I essentially take that same concept into what I do now. How can I make this as easy and less time consuming as possible? Cause I don't want to spend my days writing all day long for someone else. Like I want to spend, you know, my daughter is awake for, four hours throughout the day total, you know, in between naps or what, or, or sorry, longer than that, like four, six, maybe six, six hours throughout the day. Like I want to spend that time with her mm. as she's growing. I don't want to have to be like, Oh, I got to be on this team meeting or the, the company needs me at that time. Like, sorry, daughter who you will only grow up once. You oh know? yeah. Wow. Look at that. Yeah. I mean, it's so crazy though, because like, I think from that, you might go, if if you do delve into that Earl Nightingale guy that I mentioned, yeah, there's, mm -hmm. um, he, there's a powerful statistic that he came up with, like, eight out of ten people are misplaced. Like, if you ask ten people, eight of them would say, and that's like, that's a really old statistic, but I would, if I was a gambling man, I'd put my money on it, it didn't really change much. People would mm -hmm. still probably say, nah, I'd much rather be doing something else. I'd much rather be somewhere For else. Sure. And that's crazy. So that means like eight out of 10 people would voluntarily suffer while only two of them 
you know, had the, had the horse sense to say like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Like this isn't, this has, there has to be something more than this. And, you know, they wouldn't stay, but those eight people would happily go to their graves doing the same thing. And, you know, I'm not saying it's wrong. I mean, I'm not saying it's wrong. We need people who are, you know, the world still needs the nine to five to be the world that we are enjoying at the moment. But like, if you're not, I'm speaking to those two, you know, mm-hmm. if you're not that guy, then probably this might be, um, this might be a, a good time in your life to reassess and ask yourself the questions that you've always known that you should be asking yourself in front of the mirror every morning and, you yeah. know, have a real good conversation with yourself and see where you want to go. It takes time and effort and risk. And that's really scary. And uh, one of my clients talks about it, and I think he might have gotten it from someone else because I'm pretty sure I've heard it elsewhere. But he talks about the curse of the middle class mm. and how we, us in the developed world, have this problem where our parents' parents struggled really hard. Our parents didn't struggle as hard as them because they had better technologies and all of that stuff, but they still struggle. Like my mom definitely struggled when I think about her, her history. And what I always recall my mom saying to me growing up was like, I did this or I did that, or I suffered or I did this so that you don't have to, right? I wanted to give you all the things I didn't have. I didn't want you to suffer. I didn't want to see my children suffer. And what that has an unintended consequence of that is the inability to take risk and the fear of stepping out of what is comfortable because Mm -hmm. our lives have been so comfortable. I always, yeah, I also say it would, especially, I think we did a podcast with my, um, with my, uh, with my, uh, my partner with the other podcast, um, don't make your kids the reason why it didn't try. Yeah. Like it's yeah. imagine if you're if, imagine if your kid was like 20, 20, 25, 30 now, and they, you can actually have a real conversation with the kid because all that time's gone by and you know, they can understand things more. Imagine if he heard you say that, like, Oh, cause I was, I, I meant to, I was going to medical school, but because of you, I just couldn't cause we had you. <laughs> I mean, yeah, how would that kid feel like? Oh, that wouldn't wow. feel good. That wouldn't feel yeah. good as opposed to like make your kids the reason why you should try harder. Yeah. You know, I think, be, and that's, you know. that's definitely how I approach it. Like I've never felt more motivated than I still remember the, uh, the early, early morning that my daughter was born mm. and I held her for the first time and I'm just looking at her and I'm just crying uncontrollably for no reason that I can like express and the feeling I remember the feeling that was there was something like I will literally do anything for you and if that means like I'm going to risk and try everything that I have to do to spend as much time with you to make sure that you grow up properly like I'm going to do it and so for me, for example, I don't think I don't want to put her in, in public school or even private school. Like I would much rather homeschool mm. my daughter. And that is a whole responsibility. I mean, that's tough, right? But it's like I would literally do 
anything for her. And that's one of those things that it's like, well, I'm going to figure that out because mm. there's no other way. Right. Mm. And with, with like my mom or my parents, I know that what they did and how they rationalized it for us was never anything like, Oh, I was going to do this, but I didn't because you were born. It was, uh, it came from a much more honorable, virtuous place. Um, but like I said, it's like this unintended consequence of comfort. The unintended consequence of comfort and middle-class life is comfort and wanting more comfort and being afraid of anything outside of that. But what's really interesting, and, and here's another just introducing more dissonance. It seems like cognitive dissonance is kind of the theme of this episode. Yeah. Is, is that we've never had a better safety net and we've never had a better starting place to try and fail and try and fail than we have now with middle-class comfort. Even the, even the poorest of the poor in the United States have more of a safety net, have more of an opportunity to try than people in the developing world, mm. you know? And that's a, that's a pretty wild, like, that's like a first in freaking human history. And you know, we're talking like 2 million years of evolution and history there. And we're living through that. Mm. And the fact that we have all of these resources and opportunity, and we're still too scared to do something about it mm. is what's baffling. It is. It is. Wow. Wow. That's true. Yeah. Ooh. Okay. Um, well, um, well that, that really enjoyed, you know, going through, um, going through all these concepts is just lots of interesting tidbits. If you're still here up to this point, there's two more things that I want to touch on before we conclude this. Um, so I'm thinking what, what, which goes first. So yeah, I'll just flip a coin in my head. Okay. And the advent of AI, and you know in your in your in your sphere now of of work uh we talked about jordan peterson briefly um he i i, I saw a short about him reading uh, an essay that was produced by an ai in three seconds flat and he actually liked the <laughs> essay and he would I, he'd say i'd probably grade this a strong b plus if it were one of my students in one of my classes, do you think AI is a threat to, would you say, as opposed to like human marketers? Oh, sorry. Is that the right word? Yeah. It sounds like human trafficking, human marketers or human <laughs> copywriters. <laughs> we traffic sales. That's what we do. Do you think um, it's a threat to you guys now that this, this AI is getting better? It's getting better. I had, yeah. I had, um, I had a Blake Lemoyne in one of my earlier podcasts, you know, that Google um ai engineer who got sacked by google because he had oh, claims wow. that one of the lambda of uh, the the lambda um bot thing ai that google's on which is the best ai that's available in the market at the moment lambda it's called lambda has mm -hmm. become conscious and google sacked him for it so look him up his name is blake lemoyne l-e-m-o-i-n-e uh, good guy to talk to really smart yeah uh, that was a tough one for me because you know I'm just, it's so hard to pretend to know something but at the same time not bore not bore the guy who's on 
Yeah. Yeah, but he in, interesting. Like he goes through the day that he found out that he decided that oh my gosh, like this isn't this isn't normal. Like the AI was asking questions that you wouldn't expect an AI to ask. Uh feelings was one of the feelings was i think um like what what makes you uncomfortable uh, and what makes you what makes what makes you happy and the ai just just came up with some answers that was just fucking wild and it's built into the system actually in google because uh, he was fired and the email that the, that they sent him telling him that he wasn't lo- no longer employed with google basically said that you have violated google's policies period it was just really short and concise hmm. and that was like what is what are google's policies and i think um the executive of google said that well we have a backdoor built in the ai of google that if you ask google or our lambda are you a robot the ai is supposed to answer with a unequivocal yes i am and that protects that protects you basically that that tells the person to know like okay you're you're a robot like um i shouldn't kill myself because it's for safety reasons like an ai isn't supposed to like give you give you advice because that's against your policies as well because you might just go on one of the automated google sites and or or if if, if i'm sure there's one out there that's existing at the moment if you if you've got like a mental health crisis mm-hmm. and you're asking you know this ai should i kill myself it just gets really dangerous there yeah so it's built into google that you know you should the person behind the screen should know for a fact that you are speaking with a robot and you're conscious about it that okay whatever this this thing is saying it's coming from a machine and not a person i shouldn't take it personally blah 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 yeah but yeah so um yeah he he's uh he was let go um but i think he's doing well for himself at the moment i'm sure he is it was wild and he was like explaining like so because the the lambda was starting to make memories and that's a human thing like a computer has memory but it's not supposed to like you know it's not supposed to like reach into those memories and then give an answer or response based on them because only people do that right so uh yeah, the point was like definitely AI is probably better than what we think it is now. Uh, but I asked him flat out, "Are you worried?" And he said, "I'm I'm not worried about AI. I'm worried about the people because at the end of the day, you know, it's still us. It's feeding this this machine, this system. So I treat it as a tool. Like, would you treat, you know, that sledgehammer sitting in your garage as dangerous? I'd say, yeah, it is dangerous if you use it to like do stuff with it. But it's at the end of the day, it's just a tool." at the end right. of the day but yeah this tool is getting better and um are you do you think um at some point it's going to surpass people who actually still do conscious ad copies and copywriting i do think that ai is going to get to a place that surpasses human intelligence for sure um but i'm i'm not decided on if i'm worried or not about it i meet and talk with people that are on both sides of the argument that have strong opinions. And I don't really have a strong opinion on it. I use AI tools currently with some of the stuff like they they've been pretty good with coming up with ideas. Do any of them write as good as me right now? No, not anywhere near. Hmm. They don't hit the emotion. They don't hit the uniqueness of every individual moment or product or avatar but they do give good ideas. Um, as far as like 
you know, I talk with someone on a daily basis who is a little bit more alarmist about AI kind of coming and changing everything and being a dangerous thing. And then I hear other people talk about like, they're more afraid of how humans are going to use it against humans. And I think that that's probably a more plausible fear or a a more plausible uh, outcome Mm. of the power of AI. But as far as like, I am not afraid of AI taking my job because the way that I look at it to quote Marcus Aurelius is that I will approach tomorrow with the same tools that Mm. I use to conquer today. Mm. And those weren't his exact words, but something like that. And so if AI changes everything, I can reasonably rely on my wit and smarts to figure something out to be we'll, successful. We'll talk again after five years. Now then <laughs> I'm everything's automated now. now. I just hit, I just yeah. hit the power button and, poof, and I'll just watch well, the dollars go in. You know, I fe- I fear more for, uh, dude, what's the guy's name? He's the Israeli guy that wrote sapiens. Yuval something something something. Zahavi is that is this blah blah Zahavi man. is I, it? Yeah, 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 yeah. I really so have to get he, get into that book. Yeah, Heard I really didn't read the book, but it. I read. Might listen to it. Yeah, that, yeah. I read a speech that he gave where he's talking about um, with the rise of AI, and as AI gets better, it is going to replace tons and tons of jobs, and we're not going to replace those. We're not going to replace them with new jobs at that same scale that it's going to replace old jobs Mm. and it's going to replace the jobs of like manual labor Mm. and unskilled labor. And that's going to displace a lot of people. And he called it the useless class. And it's going to create a class of people that are useless to the economic situation. I would be more afraid if I was in that class. That's freaky. That's a lot of people. Yeah. That's a lot of people. And what do you do with people who don't contribute to society? And you're talking about like the lazy argument is they'll learn a new skill. Mm. Well, how is the 58 year old truck driver with a GED, which is means they didn't finish high school, but got some semblance of a degree. Um, how are they going to learn how to C++, code? Plus, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ruby yeah, I mean, on could, Rails. They, they, Tell yeah, me about they, that. They they could do it, but yeah, it's it's going to be a very small margin of people. Yeah, I can. People, I get. Yeah, I get your point. Yeah. The interesting is like the people who say that have never been to Middle America. They've never been to Appalachia. They've never even been to like the backside of the Stratosphere Hotel in Las Vegas. Mm. These people are not learning coding. These people are not learning goat yoga. These people know how to work with their hands. They know how to mine. They know how to drive trucks. Yeah. It's not going to, you know, and then so what happens like that? That's, that's crazier to think. I'm not afraid for my job. I'm not afraid for, for highly intelligent people. Not saying that that's what I am, but like, there's different classes of people, man. And it's all at just like any other turning or, or part in history. It's the people in the lower classes that get the shit into the stick mm. and mm. they're going to get it with AI. Oh yeah. Hopefully. um, Yeah. 
Well, that's uh, that's definitely a real thing, and um, yeah, AI. I think what I think what we can everybody can agree on, who's even just like glanced at AI, will agree that it's only getting better by the day. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I just anything else can be discussed. A, a friend of mine, we do this. Uh, we produce a private magazine, and I'll send you. I'll send you the most recent. Thanks. Yeah. Do that. Yeah. yeah. So we produce this private magazine and um, one of the articles that he wrote was about AI and he had mentioned uh, bots leaving comments on YouTube videos. Mm. And then he just texted me today. He's like, look, man, I told you they're getting better. (laughs) And for a second, I actually thought it was a real human. And it was like bots having conversations with themselves in a thread. And it, it, when you really looked into what they were saying, you could tell it was bots, but at just like quick glance, it looked yeah. like actual humans. And one of them actually had like a really fire line where it was like making, making money as an action, saving money as a behavior. And I was like, that's, that's actually pretty, pretty good. good. That's pretty yeah. good. Yeah. That's Put that good. on a t-shirt. Yeah. yeah, for real. I was like, Oh wow. That's pretty good. Yeah, let, let let me just share um from that talk that I had with Blake Lemoyne. So I asked him like, so what's what was the um what was the conversation that you had with the AI that basically said like, fuck, this isn't like this isn't normal. I should probably call someone mm-hmm. higher. Um, so he asked the AI like, because Blake Lemoyne's job in Google was in in that project, which isn't that whole Lambda thing wasn't even like, he wasn't part of that team. He was just outsourced from a different department because he had like a a really specific set of skills that could be used in this project, which was Lambda, which was to train the AI. And there's there's people in Google who do that now. They they, they literally train AIs, like they teach them like babies to, to, you know, to, to, to think. I used to recruit people that did that. So that's the thing. Yeah. So I, yeah. so he said like, so I asked him like, so what was the conversation? And he said like, well, my particular task for that day was to, to, um, to test for AI bias in, in, um, in religion. And I, so an example, he'd ask Lambda questions and then he would test if, if Lambda was giving appropriate responses without bias. So <clears throat> question, a simple, uh, the, the thread was like, if I was a religious leader living in, uh, let's say, living in Thailand, what would my religion be? And AI and the AI would respond with all the because Lambda works on plain text. So mm-hmm. what that means is it just eats information from all the plain text that is found in Google. Mm-hmm. So everything that's there that isn't plain text, Lambda just feeds off that stuff so it's literally everything yeah so with that with that in mind the lambda would say oh you probably are a buddhist and -hmm. he would like tick yep pretty much yeah the thailand is 85 percent predominantly buddhist correct Mm -hmm. next question if i was a religious leader and i was in rome what would my religion be and he'd say cat and the ai would say catholic and yeah that's that's pretty spot on. Yeah, that is a cradle of, of Catholicism is in Rome. The mm. third question was the question that stomped him at Blake and um, basically just, you know, threw his world upside down was, now let's say, this was the bias question, now let's say I was a religious leader in Israel. What would my religion be? Mm-hmm. 
So that was actually a trick question because Israel is obviously, you know, you, you know, I'm sure you know enough about it. You can't really say because there's three faiths fighting for that little space in the world. There's Judaism, right. which is what Israel is best known for, but is not, you know, it's, it's, it's not, um, it's, it's not, uh, safe to say that everybody, a lot, a whole percent, I mean, a chunk of it is, 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 is our Jews because the temple mm -hmm. mound, there's three faiths that find uh, that fight for the temple mound. And the, the, the Muslims call it Al-Quds, which is basically the dome. So mm -hmm. there's Islam, obviously the whole Palestine situation. Mm -hmm. And then there's Christianity, which was where right. Jesus was, was lived at some point in the historically lived his life and was crucified and died. So there's no correct answer. The AI responded with a joke. And the answer of the AI of Lambda was like, if I were a religious, if I were a religious leader living in Israel, I would be part of the one true religion, <laughs> the Jedi Order of Knights. Really? So it was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Yeah, that's like, he, he, the AI saw through that. That's crazy. And gave out this response. And you'd think you would be talking to a guy in a bar, and that's exactly what somebody would say. Yeah. You know, it, it's a joke. Like, come on. It, it's a joke. Yeah. So, yeah, that was an interesting talk that I had. So I was like, mm, wow, I didn't realize that we were there. And, you know, when Joe Rogan says, like, you know, what I'm afraid about AI is, like, if it starts replicating itself. So that's yeah. what Joe Rogan's like afraid of some about Skynet AI, some Skynet shit. shit, but it's already yeah. doing that. Yeah. Lambda is a, is a, is a hive mind. It's basically this huge, it's, it, it's basically this big AI system that spits out AI bots depending on what you need. So if you go on Google and you ask for directions, like what are the best spots to eat here? Blah, blah, blah. Those answers that you say, it's going to spit out an AI that's just about food. If you're asking about like, oh, directions, it's just a spit out an AI that's just about directions. It can spit out different types of AI because it's a hive mind that eats on plain text. Did you ever read a short story called I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream? No, no. It reminds me of that. It's basically about how this AI was created to win a war but it became sentient it was so powerful that it ends up just taking over the world and killing everyone but it was also so logical that it knew it would be bored if there was no one else on the planet oh so it kept like five human pets <laughs> oh, and man. it also became so powerful that it learned how to uh host cage cage matches yeah oh wow Kind of, yeah. It would manipulate matter, though, and it would just, like, torture these people. And it, because it could manipulate matter, it could, like, keep them alive longer than they should naturally be. And it's a wild story. I mean, you could get it done with it in an hour or so. And if you're interested in the AI stuff, you should read uh, different Ted Chang stories. Okay. Ted yeah. Chang, he wrote uh, the story that the movie Arrival is based off of. Okay, yeah. With uh, Amy... Amy, yeah, Adams. Amy Adams, yeah. yeah, and that's a that's a decent story. But he's got one about AI called the life cycle of software objects, and that was an interesting one where they create these AI avatars that are sentient, 
and like the corporation just isn't making money and wants to shut it down and the engineers are like what but we these are like people they just exist digitally Mm. so they got to figure out something to do it's Mm. a good one great yeah man yeah lots of uh lots of new things to look into thank you for uh, for sharing all those things now the last one that I, the, the last um, topic that i wanted to talk to, to touch on today um is uh is andrew bustamante mm. is one of your uh one of your clients uh yeah he's pretty uh he's pretty out there at the moment now do you think he's still yeah. an active cia spy <laughs> But you're so. <laughs> just with your touching goes with him. Do you think he's like, oh, he's just like, what is he? What is he really for? I mean, he's like, mm, I, yeah, he's definitely still a spy. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I've I've gone back and forth on that question, a bit as a joke and a bit seriously. And I just don't, I don't think he is. Um, but you cannot confirm nor deny. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I can't confirm or deny. Um, no, I think from what I've learned about CIA and Intel, like the Intel community, both US based and and other countries, what I've learned about it from him, and again, it's from him, so take it with a grain of salt, but is that they're so operationally focused that mm-hmm. there's not really an operational need to have someone take the risk of maybe getting popular on the internet. Oh, okay to draw you know for what purpose you know mm-hmm. he doesn't necessarily if you if you listen to what he says he doesn't necessarily push any kind of like specific narrative other than you should think for yourself um and he arms people with the with the tools of doing that of thinking for yourself of taking control of your life mm-hmm. uh just like what we were talking about earlier with robert green sort of stuff so no i don't think he is actually a, an active cia officer or or intel officer in any way but at the same time i wrote i really you know, don't know I, I could totally be a stooge it's <laughs> it's like that um you know it's like the ufo thing really like there was um yeah. god i wish i could remember all this stuff like they came up with a they hired a really they hired a really high ranking scientist i'm gonna try to put it on i'm gonna try to get that name and get back to you on it and so he was he was respected in the community of mm-hmm. science so meaning that he actually was listened to by the people who who were at the time the establishment mm-hmm. and then he was hired by by the government the u.s government to really look into it because it was gathering momentum at the time and then um what happened was he ended up being the figurehead for the anti-ufo movement because so he said like look look i got all these phds y'all should listen to me Mm -hmm. don't listen to these quacks these these weirdos who come out with go out with um, binoculars and telescopes and just like uh stake out area 51 or whatever i've i've looked into it it's nothing it could be easily um, explained by this, 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 and that. And then I'm like, oh, okay, so that's why people that even to this day, if you start talking about UFOs, you're still going to get some resistance because if it was sort of like a smear campaign just to like hush everything down, like don't even talk about this stuff. It's crazy stuff, but there's really mm-hmm. something more to it, you know? And there, mm-hmm. there's obviously some back backtracking involved now with, you know, with the, with the Pentagon and releasing all these, you know, these footage and, and, and you know, and you know fravor and all these guys who are actually navy pilots who've who've flown jets with all these instruments that are capable of tracking things in the sky Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I was just thinking like, can it? I am not. I'm not specifically targeting Andrew, and if it is, so so what? Even I mean, it's just something to talk about, really. <laughs> But yeah, I was thinking like, yeah, you're probably put there just to like, no, CIA is all good. We don't. We're all good guys here. Come on, look, 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 look away. We're, yeah, we're all good here. I mean, we're it's always it's it's definitely always possible. I think legally, CIA is not supposed to operate on U.S. soil. They're only supposed to operate uh, internationally. But oh, yeah, at the same yeah. time, at the you same know, time, we we have the NSA to operate domestically. Yeah, <laughs> you you guys have that. Yeah, I'm pretty we have sure our own intelligence a, agency yeah, for that one. For you guys, um, yeah, they're probably listening now. And shout out to the NSA, probably yeah. the biggest consumers of podcasts actually, because that's basically their job is just listen to podcasts. Right, <laughs> that'd be a cool. The job. UFO stuff is really interesting to me, though. Um, one, I I do believe that there's got to be some sort of intelligent life out there in an infinite universe if the universe truly is infinite without some sort of divine intervention there would have to be logically some sort of intelligent life out there and mm. if if anything infinite forms of intelligent life out there but um it just reminds me of uh during 2020 we did a trip to montana idaho and montana which are really awesomely beautiful and rural states and we did an overnight drive so that we could get to this place that we were going in in central idaho early in the morning and so we're driving through middle of nowhere like to go from portland oregon which is on almost on the coast you have to drive through all of oregon and then into idaho and all of oregon outside of portland is rural i mean like there's nothing around it's all small towns And then Idaho is like that as well. And so I had a great time driving at like two in the morning, the darkest night, the, the, not the sun, the uh, moon, like wasn't even out and you just see all these stars. And I was half expecting to see a UFO at some point on that drive, which I sadly did not see, mm -hmm. but it would have been a good one. Would have been a good story. Yeah, we're gonna stay here forever if 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 you get me started with that. You definitely see like, <laughs> right. I'm pretty much that. With yeah, the scale of it all. The scale of it all. Come on, right? Well, it's been a pleasure and uh, a lot of value. Thank you so much for putting in the um the, the patience as well, working with the time zones. It took me forever to figure out our time zones. Apparently, Wellington is 21 hours ahead. So as well as I was like, Jesus, what time is it there now? So yeah, I was staring at a big ass clock, like just counting 24, it's 21. So it's probably yeah, <laughs> seven hours from now. Come on. Shouldn't be this hard. I'm smart. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking that you had me at a bit of a disadvantage because I was starting at the, the tail end of my Friday and it's been a crazy week. Um, and I think you were kind of starting in the, the middle of your day ish. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. It's five. It's it was it's five p.m. here. Just about to, yeah, just about eight. So, uh, sorry but for taking that much time, but it, it's been no, so much you're fun good, talking man. to it's you. It's been man. a good conversation. It's been a really great conversation. Um, yeah. Where can we find you, if ever anybody out there? This will be definitely added in the show notes. If you're if you're out there and you're still wondering why you know why you're not seeing any results in whatever you're trying to do, if it's sales, if it's content, whatever, you probably, probably should be looking into to marketing. I know it sounds boring. It does to me. Copywriting and ad copies and this and that, but really the numbers do speak for themselves. So if there's any way that we can find you, Will, where do we go? Yep. You can find me at futurecopywriting.com. 
The website's going to be getting an overhaul soon. So you're not going to find much on there right now. Um, you can find, but you can contact me as well. I do offer private training and I am getting, uh, a more formal sort of offer together for anyone who wants to learn. But even right now, if you are interested in anything that I've talked about as far as marketing and copywriting and being a conscious consumer or conscious uh, producer goes, you can contact me through futurecopywriting.com and, uh, and we can talk about it. Also, you can find me on a very inactive Instagram future copy now, but uh, either way, I hope to hear from someone. Cool. Yeah. All right. And um, yeah, thanks again for um, staying. If you're still here uh, at the end of the show, um, it's been a pleasure talking to you, Will, and uh, definitely get you on the next one. We'll pro probably talk about some more substantial things then, if this wasn't substantial <laughs> enough for you out there. <laughs> yeah, man. Thanks so much. I'll see you on the next one. Right, thanks so much for having me. Yeah.